that's cool. Thank you, Mr. Ra. Hey, that was very cool. Thank you. Thank you. Can I ask you what you're seeing? What is, what, what, can, why? Let me milk that. Let me ask you. <laughs> Tell me something. Give me some feedback. Like, thank you. Well, anyways, greetings, everybody. I am starting this podcast. I see and new ones are watching, but I'm going to start it anyway. So this is a very, this is what I learned in my research. Is This is a very complicated uh, style. It's, it wasn't one dimensional by any means. And um, I appreciate you joining me in this adventure we're about to do. Now, I really appreciate this one sister. I'm going to find her stuff right now. Um, again, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel around this piece. I'm going to go to um, this one sister. Her name is uh, Lexa. I'm not going to try to mispronounce it. Anyway, we're going to find her right now. Really? Two years ago. Really? Oh, my goodness. Okay. Here we go. I'm just going to... This is not right. Okay, you know I forget about it. This is what I'm going to do. Can y'all see it? I didn't even put it on the screen. Hold up. <laughs> All right, so let's go to this theory. Intellectual. All right, cool. We're getting in. Let's get into this. All right. It's just very complicated, even diving into this type of thing. But I'm going to dive in. Intellectual media, shout out. She's amazing. So we're going to use her pretty much as a basis for a lot of the information that I use. And we're gonna use it. Like when we do a black woman's history of hair, everything is just, let's just click on here. It can help you let's on. Start here, let's start here. Let's start here. All right, hold up, let me put this on. So this is intellectual media. She has. I've always adored the vintage. Had an amazing series on black women and men, and just it's just really great history. And I like her presentation. So we're gonna use her presentation for me to type, try to tell this story that I'm trying to get to us um, through these certain clips of these videos. Okay. So I hope you entertain. I hope you enjoy this. All right. So I'm not gonna play the whole video, but I'm gonna play some of it. Vintage pinup and burlesque aesthetic. 
I've always. Okay. So this is just to answer the question. The question kind of is like, where does this notion of like um, how the media, social media even expresses black women or women's uh, sexuality, um, peace and love to Queen Nancy Johnson. Um, and where does some of it come from? So I'm going to just dive into different aspects of things. And if it doesn't make sense to you, then just, you know, give, give it a chance. And then it'll, you'll maybe figure out how all of it together evolved and develops where we are today. All right. So just give it a chance. Adored the vintage pinup and burlesque aesthetic. As many of you know, if you follow me on Twitter or Instagram, I love the glamour, the artistry, the costumes, and yes, the female form. I wanted to celebrate the history of the very brave women who dare to participate in cheesecake and burlesque in a world much more misogynistic than today. There are plenty of resources on the glamorous white women who dominated these fields, like the highly recognizable Betty Page, Neil Burlesque Queen Dita Von mid-20th century striptease stars Gypsy Rose Lee and Lily St. Cyr, others, but very few on the glamorous black women. But these women existed, and though much of the information is lost to time, I did some digging to learn about the journalism they inspired, the money they made, and the history they left behind. Maybe you've seen their pictures floating around social media, but now it's time for a deep dive. Before diving into this video about black women in burlesque and pinup glamour, I want to shout out the amazing sponsor of this video, Beducated. Not only is that the perfect brand, 99 a month. Check audience as much as men. Through the 1950s, it was common to see clubs advertising to couples. Meanwhile, opposers of pinups and burlesque referred to such public displays of sexuality as objectifying and of low morals. From the beginning, burlesque models and actresses used pinup illustrations to advertise their performances and shows. Many were used as postcards. Another early iteration of the pinup was the illustrated Gibson Girl by artist Charles Dana Gibson, who was later turned into a real model. Pinups gained popularity in the early 20s but really came into vogue during World War II when U.S. soldiers would put them on lockers, equipments, and even planes. Betty Grable was especially popular. Peruvian artist Alberto Vargas painted many pinups during the World War II era for Esquire magazine, completing a total of 180 between 1940 and 1946. He also did a number of pinup illustrations in the late 40s and 50s featuring black women. As photography became easier and cheaper, so did the creation of pinup photos featuring real women women, also referred to as cheesecake photography. On the creation of the term cheesecake, a 1950s magazine claimed, a New York news photographer once asked a woman to lift her skirt ever so slightly to make a better picture. The beautiful woman complied. When the editor, something of a gourmet, saw the picture on his desk, he exclaimed, why, this is better than cheesecake. While pinup depictions and burlesque would always elicit debates about morality, neither the white women who participated nor the white women who did not were subject to long held racial stereotypes about their sexuality. White women were never compared to Sarah Bartman, the 19th century woman exploited for her curves. They faced misogyny, but never the additional layer of racism. Meanwhile, black women's identities were tangled in plantation era notions of sex and were expected to be examples of respectability for their race. Perhaps this is part of the reason why much of white women's burlesque in pinup history has been preserved and celebrated, unlike the black women. But black bombshells existed. So, Let's talk about them. 
Perhaps the earliest billed black burlesque performer was Ada Overton Walker, or the queen of the cakewalk, who performed her take on the sexy and trendy Salome. Hold on, hold on. Let's process that real quick. Wait a minute. So, what up, Jay? What up? So, what about, what do y'all think about that? Have you, did y'all, I, I appreciate you here. Welcome to the Tommy Cole Show. Uh, yeah, I, this is one aspect that I wanted to bring, and I want you guys to definitely involve yourselves in the chat, or if you'd like to join me on this podcast, you are more than welcome. I'm going to put the link in the chat in case you would like to hang out with me tonight a little. and We talk about what we're watching, like homegirls and homeboys and homegirls. All right, so let's get back into it, and let me know if you like what we're watching. All right. So did y'all know there was black burlesque women? I'm pretty sure this audience knew that. Let's keep going. Unlike the black women, but black bombshells existed. So let's talk about them. the earliest billed black burlesque performer was Ada Overton Walker, or the queen of the cakewalk, who performed her take on the sexy and trendy Salome dance in a packed New York theater in 1912, but she had been performing her take on it since 1905. However, very rarely were black women of the 20th century who performed tantalizing strip teases called burlesque stars. If they were, they were usually a part of burlesque shows featuring white women, like in two-for-one black and white reviews, in which there was a white show followed or preceded by an all black review of women. As years progressed, when troops would integrate and bring in one or two black performers, they were publicized as exotics, with producers using descriptors like jungle fever or voodoo mistress on posters and playbills. Frequently, women of color were only booked if they performed acts which reinforced racist stereotypes. Though it was in 1926 that Josephine Baker debuted her banana act in Paris to praise and controversy, she had been doing erotic dance nearly nude for around a year at that point. When asked about her performances, she said, I wasn't really naked. I simply didn't have any clothes on. Back in the States, Time Magazine would refer to her as a Negro wench whose dancing and singing might be topped anywhere outside of Paris. Baker never got the kind of fame in America that she had in Paris. In the States, black media and the women themselves were more likely to use the term shake dancers than burlesque performers. Ethel Waters was a shimmying shake dancer in Philadelphia nightclubs before she became a high-paid recording artist and actress. Her original show business nickname was Sweet Mama String Bean because of her tall frame. She recalled, I sure knew how to roll and quiver and my hips would become whirling dervishes. Cotton Club in Harlem featured... Hold up, hold up. Y'all know what a whirling dervish is? Let me put that word out here. Anybody know? No, I'm dying to tell you. Whirling dervish. Whirling dervish. So literally... A whirling dervish is like uh, these people who used to turn and spin around and around in prayer. They used to pray, but they'd be just spinning around, dancing in circles. They call them whirling dervishes. Yeah. All right. Back to the show. 
burlesque slash shake dancers, but it didn't allow black patrons. The Creole Palace, a black owned jazz cabaret and nightclub at the Hotel Douglas in San Diego, opened its doors in 1924 and stayed open until 1946. And it did allow black patrons as well as whites. Dubbed the Harlem of the West, the Creole Club featured variety shows of singing, comedy, and dancing featuring black women of all colors. They were usually advertised in newspapers as the Creole Cuties, and the club bragged that there were full change in shows and costumes semi-monthly. My favorite part is that the club was open from 11 p.m. to 6 a.m. because I'm so used to the club closing at 2 a.m. Like, where they do that at? Creole Palace guests were partying until dawn. The Creole Palace delighted black travelers who often stayed at Hotel Douglas, the area's first black-owned accommodations. And if you're like me and you love food history, perhaps you're curious about what was on the menu at the Creole Palace between leg kicks and feather dances. For just $1 in 1933, audiences could have Creole fried chicken, long branch potatoes, green peas, hot biscuits, and a salad. There were also steak specials, club sandwiches, lobster salads, and 25-cent shrimp cocktails. If you were feeling fancy, a quart of champagne would cost $7. In this 1949 review film called Burlesque in Harlem, audience members were invited to enjoy the bronze burlesque featuring singers, comedians, and yes, striptease dancers. Check out Tarza Young shaking her stuff. Striptease artists and burlesque stars as individual performers really grew in popularity in the 50s when they were routine fixtures of Jet magazine. The dating exploits and career choices of shake girls were reported regularly in the magazine, though they were not mentioned at all in the more middle class ebony. The girls were always being married, getting gifts, or getting into alleged cheating scandals. During the Great Depression, few people could afford Broadway shows, but they still craved entertainment. So burlesque peaked in popularity. One of the most renowned was Minsky's Burlesque, with six New York theaters in Philly, Baltimore, and Pittsburgh. By 1935, citizens groups were protesting such establishments, leading to more performance restrictions, transgressions, and raids. In 1937, all burlesque liquor licenses were not renewed in the city of New York, for example. However, the Minsky Burlesque circuit would continue, and by 1952, when shake dancers were on vogue in Jet Magazine, it was reported that sepia stars Tina Marshall and Labame were added to the once-all white mix. Detroit-born Labame, real name Gloria Howard, originally began shake dancing because a booking agent said she was too tall for the chorus line. She had been billed previously as a shake dancer, and at Minsky's, she was paid $1,000 a week for her bumps and grind act. This is approximately $11,000 a week in today's money. She also received marquee billing. Just two years later, Labame was reported to begin a six-month European nightclub tour, working for at least $500 a week, or about $5,500 in today's money. By comparison, a black woman working in, say, Mississippi could expect on average $700 per year. And for black women nationwide, the average weekly pay was $24, or $256 a week in today's money. But by another comparison, Tempest Storm, the highest paid white dancer, earned around $3,000 a week. In a tan magazine from September 1953 that I don't have access to, Labame wrote an essay answering the question, can 
a girl be good in show business? On the steamship, the Queen Mary, on the way to London in 1954, a storm scared passengers so badly that the captain requested Labame to perform and put them at ease. Wrote Jet, her torrid, hip-tossing act made everyone forget the storm. While in Europe, Labame married a Swedish nightclub owner and businessman and quit burlesque. Like Labame, some women use their time in burlesque and shake dancing to move into other realms of entertainment or to meet well-paid husbands. Rose Hardaway was a well-known shake dancer who in the late 40s performed in New York. Paris and London. In 1952, the Baby Grand Cafe in Harlem offered Rose $1,500 to dance against Labame for the title of Shake Dance Queen of 52. Labame reportedly won this battle. Rose went on to Paris, where after a rumored near fight with her boss in a club, she was nearly blacklisted. It was rumored, however, that she turned down a $750 weekly fee in 1952 to tour Minsky's burlesque circuit. But this could have been a PR... Do you see? It's always been lucrative. It's always been big money to be in this type of arena. Look where I pause it. Let me keep going. Attempt on her part. She retired in the mid 50s to become a blues singer, her one album being the well received It's Time for Rose Hardaway. However, the transition didn't go too smoothly because in 1958 she was arrested for larceny and forgery. Even still, in 1960, she was listed as a guest on various programs like The Ed Sullivan Show. Who were other famous shake dancers? In the mid 20th century, most shake dancers of any renown performed in urban. All right, let's keep it moving. Y'all understand what's popping. All right, so let me keep going. Let me fast forward to this part. I don't know about Chavo. I know my daddy used to love him some Jet Magazine. Let's go. Cheese cake photography. Hollywood long ago learned that scantily clad, well-curved damsels were a strong selling point for its vast motion picture industry. But only recently, with the advent of top quality Negro magazines and the rush of national advertisers to take the vast $15 million Negro market, has the brown skin model found her place in the multi-million dollar glamorized leg industry. Wrote actress and pinup Rosalind Hayes in 1952. Some people thought being photographed as near as I was to nudity was an unpardonable sin. Yet they must realize that work most frequently called for consists of cheesecake or leg art. And however photographed or painted, the fact still remains that it is art. Many women who appeared in Jet were girls next door types who had college careers or aspirations in science and politics, but some were aspiring celebrities using the magazine as a stepping stone. Famous black women who appeared as pinups included the pageant star and actress Jane Kennedy, actress and black exploitation icon Pam Greer. Hey, this bulletin. Hi, everybody. Morning, everybody. Hi. Hey, everybody. Can I come in and talk to you? Hi, kids. Hi, y'all. Hi, Ramona. Hey. And actress Janet Du Bois, most famed for being Wilona on Good Times. Jet also published calendars through the 60s and 80s that grew increasingly risque and eventually very nude. I would actually love for them to bring these back if I could be Miss January. Hue Magazine was another Johnson publication that featured pinup photography, though I don't have access to digitized archives to peek inside the way I'd like. The titles on the covers were often meant to be salacious, with questions like, what makes sex appeal? And spare parts for sex. They were published from 1953 to 1959, and for my New Yorkers with access to the Schomburg Center, they're available. By the late 50s, after the 1953 introduction of Playboy, magazines wanting to duplicate its success were taking it a bit further. One of the first magazines to display black women completely nude was tan and terrific she looks like wendy williams y'all see that 
What up, Nancy Johnson? She does look like Wendy Williams. That's crazy. Which, though published without a date or editor credit, was linked to pornographer Reuben Sturman. Duke Magazine was a 1957 Playboy-like editorial magazine targeting well-to-do black men. It only lasted six issues, but contained black pinup illustrations and centerfolds. The women were called the Duchesses of the Month and nestled between men's essays and stories by novelist Chester Himes, writer George Shiler, and other writers. The editor of the short-lived magazine was Dan Burley, who was a writer, journalist, and musician. After starring in a raunchy, critically acclaimed, but poorly performing musical, Michelle Nichols, born Grace Dell, attracted the attention of Playboy's creator, Hugh Hefner. Ironically, the play was a satire of Playboy. She began performing song and dance routines at the band's Chicago club shortly after. At some point, Michelle also did pinup photography before she went on to star as Neota Uhara on Star Trek in 1966. She was one of the first black women in a major TV series. And by the way, she also started a project with NASA to help recruit black people and women, which helped NASA recruit the first female astronaut, Sally Ride, and the first black astronaut, Gian Guy Bluford. In 1963, LA photographer Howard Moorhead overheard a white photographer saying, it is next to impossible to supply consistently attractive pinups and fashion photography using Negro models for the simple reason that there aren't that many attractive Negro girls who have charm and who are photogenic. Moorhead, who was also a Tuskegee Airman and the creator of the Miss Bronze California beauty pageant, knew this wasn't true and took artistic and sensual pictures of black women. He created and published the photographic essay, Gentlemen Prefer Bronze, into a magazine and later a book in 1964, and it included nudity. Meanwhile, in March 1965, Playboy printed the first black playmate of the month, 19-year-old Jennifer Jackson. If that age seems a bit young to you, keep in mind that teens in the 1960s were more likely to marry and have babies earlier than teens today. Jennifer said about her experience, I didn't show what they show now, just the top. But still, it was risque. Because she also worked at the Chicago club, she got more fan mail and hate mail than any other Playboy bunny. Though a 2017 profile is mostly positive about her experience, Jennifer remembered Hefner with sharp eyes, saying, Hef was kind of like a pimp, a high-class pimp. Jennifer said her dad was proud of her and that her mom told her to watch herself. Her twin sister eventually became employed at the Chicago club as well, where women notably experienced poor working conditions and terrible pay. The 2017 article went on, the Vietnam War was ramping up, and she felt proud that black soldiers could see one of their own in the magazine's glossy pages. I got so many fan letters from those guys, it broke my heart. A lot of them never came back, and some who did come back were real messed up. She added, it was something to show the white community that there are some beautiful black women, black people, which was disregarded. We weren't considered at all. We weren't a part of Madison Avenue or Hollywood who set the beauty standards. All you saw in the movies was black maids. Jennifer went on to be an investigator for Child Protective Services in Seattle and led a normal life. Jennifer's appearance was followed by the first black woman on the cover, Jean Bell, in a group off to the side in January 1970 and Doreen Stern by herself in 1971. Something interesting happened with Ebony Magazine in the 60s. In the midst of the Vietnam War in 1968, it dedicated its August issue to black soldiers. One section, cheekily titled Something for the Boys, stood out in particular. Describing the average black soldier, they said, snapped from civilian life and forced to live in practically an all-male world, even while on duty in the States, he misses the sight and companionship of the opposite sex. So he settles for the substitute. Pictures from news 
newspapers and magazines. But young black soldiers have one complaint. We cannot find nice pinups of our own girls. Why can't Ebony print more pictures of pretty girls? The magazine continued, we have just one request. Will any reader who is not particularly partial to pinups please clip these pages and send them to a friend in service? There were six women photographed on a beach and I love that one of them wore her natural hair. Predictably, not all of Ebony's middle class readers were pleased with the magazine's choice to print very tame pinup photography. Wrote one angry reader, I just perused the special issue for August and am disappointed to find such a fine collection of Negro material, spoiled with a few pages of pinup girls. Is the morality of our people not worth more than a few dollars in magazine sales? The reader, Sister Rose Carlita, announced, your request to clip the pages and send them to a soldier is just too, too far out. Help the fellows to live clean by sending them attractive, uplifting pictures, something worth fighting for. But there was a lot of encouragement too. We're very proud of you for your soul sister pinup pictures in your August special issue. But when we cut out one girl, we also cut out one or two other girls on the opposite side of the page, said one GI before requesting that Ebony make another edition with separate pages. Another woman named Nancy from the Nasty Natty requested that Ebony feature Midwestern girls like herself in Cincinnati. Another reader thanked Ebony for showing those who quote, need proof that Negroes can be pinup girls as well as men with letters after their names. Complain one soldier, and all due respect for the numerous pinups on GI's walls here in Thailand, one would think Playboy was the only magazine over here. Why are the pinup pickings so slim? Burlesque and pinup photography fell in popularity through the 70s onward as strip clubs and pornography took a more dominant and public role in erotic media. The negative stigma attached to strip tees was beginning to fade as well. A 1978 Jet Magazine issue asked, how do the members of the elitist Chicago Assembly relax after putting aside law books, business ledgers, and other professional paraphernalia? Recently, they put on black ties and tuxedos to watch a strip tease dancer who accepts their applause. The magazine also continued publishing its pinup count though there were a lot more boobs. In the 90s, there was a revival of burlesque, though reviews typically included all white lineups. In response, performers like Aurora Boobrielis and Maya Haynes-Warren founded organizations like Brown Girls Burlesque in 2007 to welcome minority performers in a white-dominated genre. As time passed, Black neo-burlesque performers also incorporated more of the genre's earlier roots, like variety performances with some strictly comedies and others political. All right, so that's one aspect, y'all. And I appreciate you guys joining in and watching. All right, so that's one aspect. So that's pinups and burlesque. And you see that. Did you guys know that there were black pinup chicks? Or black uh, burlesque chicks? Or what do you know about burlesque? Hit me up in the chat. Hit me up in the chat. Let me know something. So I'm going to show you some more. Let's see right here. This is the one. This is the one right here. All right. So it's just different ass. Yeah, her videos are very well put together. And since I don't have her budget, she has a whole like team and stuff. I'm gonna just go on and borrow all this sister stuff. I, I let these sisters and brothers who we're gonna watch tonight know that I wanted to use um, their material. And you go and shout out her and, um, you know, subscribe to her. She's called Intellectual Media. All right. What up, OG Patrice? Greetings and salutations. This was interesting. Oh, yeah. Appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. 
So we're just going to do, but what I am doing is orchestrating, okay? Because she has a lot of videos, which are all very fascinating. I had Corona a couple years back. And while I was laid up for two weeks, I watched all her videos. She just really helped me stay focused and um, positive and things like that. So go check out Sister Intellectual Media. She got a million views. She ain't worried about me. So check this out very informative information okay shower every day uh, i don't shower here's another aspect of black women's sexuality don't shower every day uh, i don't shower every day and a washcloth why would i need a washcloth <laughs> to wash yourself with it's in the name washcloth ph balance itself and you want to know why it's not because you're born with it it's because i keep dirty ass i wash my Oh, I wash my asshole. I wash my everything. It's a dirty asshole. Oh, I'm a big fan of waiting for the steak. When you're 60 90, your ass ain't but one inch from your loved one's nose. I wash my mother ass. Not so fresh down there? No. That must be something wrong with you. You got to wash your ass. Y'all take 365 showers a year. No. Black people use washcloths? I don't know any who don't. I want you to stop fing bougie like you ain't washed that in the sink. Because I know you have. You better wash that Your dick smells like mustard. When I was in middle and high school, the one rumor a black girl could not escape was regarding her genitals. Her sticks was the insult and slander like being called a hoe that needed no verification. Okay, let me explain why I'm using this one. Okay, I'm using this because you think it's odd, Jay? Um, all of this deals with sexuality and people's perception of black women. People like to be caricatures of black, of women, or specifically black women. You see a lot of people act like they black and stuff, but there's so many different dynamics and uh, uh, issues and things that women, black women, women in general also have had to deal with that I just wanted to kind of, you know, analyze those things. This is an analysis. So since she already did all the footwork and I say, thank you, intellectual media, we're, I'm piecing together from her videos, my focus, if that makes sense. Okay. What I want to, you know, examine. All right. Patient spread like wildfire. One rumor or one bad day was all it took. Of course, very few people like having an odor, vaginal or otherwise. But in the black community, there's a recurring contest over hygiene habits that often comes across as performative. Think about the backlash to social media influencer B. Simone oversharing that she takes showers every two to three days, or the commotion over Summer Walker using a washing bowl. In response, some black women declared that they showered two to three times a day, sometimes more. Others encourage the women to douche. And while two to three showers may be understandable if you live in the belly aching heat with little AC access, for those of us in mild temperatures, it's not necessary. And douches, contrary to popular belief, are never necessary. So why does the black community, especially black women, keep engaging in hygiene Olympics on social media? It's fun to discuss to a degree the ways in which we're different. And for people who didn't grow up learning about hygiene, the conversations can be helpful. Yes, change your toothbrushes, towels, and wash rags frequently, and don't neglect that ass crack. But where does the overcompensating, three showers a day, douching with Lysol, etc., come from? How does it fit into a broader pattern of mainly white celebrities sharing that 
they don't bathe? And more pressingly, how has the vulva health of black women been compromised due to the desire to escape racist stereotypes and not be compared to people who don't wash their legs? First, we'll have to talk about hygiene history. I'm washing me in my clothes, bitch. I'm washing me in my clothes. But first, can I get a round of applause for this video sponsor, Beducated? If you love my videos, you've likely heard about Beducated, which offers over 100 inclusive and accessible your love life for just $10 a month. It's happening, people. Over. All right. So, all right. We're still watching this. 100 bucks off. Very Picture yourself here. All right. Southern women reared Wayne, mentioning stink. PDH, or public displays of hygiene culture, didn't blossom overnight. Think of all the song lyrics about smelling like water, nothing, or sweet desserts. Plus all the lyrics by artists from Rico Nasty to Cardi B to Lil Wayne, mentioning stank or comparing to fish. Remember when eating pineapples for a sweet taste was all the rage. I have family members, black Southern women reared in the mid 20th century who used douche bags mixed with Lysol and who sprinkled their panties with talcum based baby powder. Searches on social media and internet forums show this practice of toxic chemical as a cleanser has never died. There's a genre of YouTube and TikTok videos of black women walking the viewers through their massive collection of hygiene products and videos rating hygiene products for quick fixes that likely do damage in the long term. When noting an uptick of black people's purchases of hygiene and personal care products in 1969, D. Park Gibson, the founder of the first black PR firm wrote, undoubtedly much of the desire for cleanliness is to overcome the prejudicial old wives tale that all Negroes smell bad. The racist misconception that black people are inherently dirty blossomed during American slavery for a number of reasons. In Africa, cleanliness has long been a central component of various cultures. Enter the rise of the intercontinental chattel slave trade. While being kept for months in slave dungeons on the coast of West Africa, enslaved people wallowed in various body excrements, blood, urine, feces, vomit, etc., until being transported on equally unsanitary ships for months at a time. In Solomon Northrop's 12 Years a Slave, Patsy, a teenage girl being raped by the sadistic enslaver Edwin Epps, was refused soap by the man's wife both to punish and humiliate her, but also to deter the enslaver from continuing to forsake his vows. So basically, he felt she, the, the slave master's wife wouldn't let her use soap to make her poon tank stank, hoping that her husband wouldn't want to bang that. But it didn't stop nothing. Period. No pun intended. Okay, let's watch. Patsy sneaks off the plantation to go get some soap. And when caught, she tells Epps, Mrs. Don't give me soap to wash with as she does the rest. And you know why. It's clear how important hygiene was to Patsy and other black women to risk injury or death for a bar of soap. Some enslavers withheld soap as a form of punishment, and others simply didn't provide the enslaved with soap to save money, seeing it as unnecessary because the enslaved were not actually humans with basic needs. This neglect of hygiene caused death and illness for all enslaved people. But for black women, their fragile vaginal microbiomes were no doubt impacted by the conditions. Additionally, the sexual assault of black women and consensual sex with partners with less than adequate hygiene could further complicate matters. 
When you mix in the long-term historical aversion and demonization of vaginas because of monthly periods, the Old Testament literally calls this period of time for women unclean and claims that it makes those who come into contact with it also unclean, the desire to be clean and project cleanliness is no big surprise. With freedom from slavery came a renewed desire for and access to cleanliness. It would be enfolded into respectability politics, being better than the stereotype given to us by racism, as well as a religious tenet. Cleanliness is next to godliness. And plus, it made good sense. Even still, racist ads at the turn of the century continue linking blackness with filth, like the infamous pear soap ads that washed off black skin. Meanwhile, germ theory was making bathing with warm water and soap a regular recommendation. In fact, segregated public bathhouses would spring up in urban centers like New York, Philadelphia. Can you imagine taking a whole bath in a public bath? Well, people used to do that. People used to, you see that picture? People used to go to a public, you would pay maybe five cents or whatever, and you would go and you would wash your ass with soap or whatever you use in that bath with other people. Do you see that? Wow. But that, see, a lot of people didn't live places. Like they just lived, like some people just lived on land. It wasn't even a house yet or whatever. And they needed somewhere to bathe. So the city, there you go. Men, women, children, New York's free public baths. Look, oh, it's free. Okay, they have to pay. My bad. What do you think about that? Philadelphia and Chicago. Mind you, this is centuries after the ancient baths and habits of the Moors, India, China, Japan, etc. And prior to the 50s, when public bathhouses fell out of popularity with the rise of home plumbing, Black Americans would own and patron Black bathhouses. Right before the dawn of the 20th century, douching became a popular option for contraception. Though douching after sex only reduces the chance of contraception by about 30%, I'm sure women of the day took what they could get. And thanks to obscenity standards from the 1873 Comstock Act, douches and vaginal syringes were billed as feminine hygiene products. Later, after the availability of condoms and diaphragms, the latter of which was the most prescribed birth control by the 1930s, douche advertising morphed. A recurring theme reflected the target audience. Otherwise perfect women who ruined their marriages because they didn't pump benzalconium chloride or other chemicals into their vaginas to control odor. That benzalconium chloride is Lysol, by the way, a brand you likely have below your sink. It advertised itself throughout the 20th century as a gentle cleanser, far more effective than vinegar douches. After World War II, two important things happened. The consumer economy reignited and companies slowly began seeing black people as a worthwhile consumer base. So advertisements for douching to black women became more numerous in the years to come. Just so you can watch this on your own, this is called Black Women and the Hygiene Olympics. And this sister, her, her channel is called Intellectual Media. Okay, I'm getting a lot of resource from her. 
In the Chicago Defender, Lysol told black women that their product would leave them smelling sweet, clean, and dainty. A 1967 Ebony ad for Massengill douching products said, it's a feeling of thorough inner cleanliness that only a Massengill douche gives. Six years later, Massengill informed Ebony readers that douches clean out vaginas after intercourse and wash away normal vaginal secretions. There are a lot of ads for douches in Ebony magazine from the 60s and 90s. And meanwhile, douching did not start to be officially discouraged by medical professionals until the 80s, and it was a slow process. Plus, for girls and women with a combined lack of healthcare access, family members who use douches, and no public school supplied sex education about vaginal care, the continued ads were just the cherry on top. Rather than addressing why vaginal odor occurs, wearing tight non-cotton underwear, the cheating dicks of partners, or the dirty fingers or tongues of partners, inadequate diets or water intake, feminine hygiene products that destroy the body's natural pH, etc., those feminine hygiene products become integral to a woman's routine. Hold up. Let's emphasize the dirty dicks for a moment. <clears throat> because that's a big, that's, a, that's happening a lot, y'all. People be cheating and then they go and get something and then they may not even know they got something and they bring it home and give it to their little, you know, their woman, you know what I mean? Or vice versa, you know what I mean? It's just, that's... Cheating is just not worth it, y'all, especially not nowadays. Okay, I'll get off my my naggy, my naggy high horse. A 2002 study found that black women are 34% more likely to douche than white women. And though this is often to prevent or treat an odor, douches actually cause bacterial vaginosis. A 2002 review of multiple studies found a link between douching and certain cancers. And a 2015 study found that black women in the sample who douched had 48% higher levels of an endocrine system disrupting chemical that extends product fragrance shelf life. Feminine wipes and gels were linked to urinary tract infections in a 2018 survey. And douches during pregnancy increase the risk of preterm birth. Most interestingly, research has indicated a link between intimate partner violence and douching. Summed up Dr. Angela K. Guy Lee, African-American women and white women that are most likely to douche have limited educational and economic resources. They are often reliant on male intimate partners for resources. Their lack of power in intimate relationships makes it more difficult for these women to refuse sex, require condom usage, and leave abusive relationships. Additionally, in IPV relationships or relationships where sexual currency is key, if a woman needs to heal from an STD, wait for her period to end or be treated for BV, the need to use a quick acting douche to keep a partner satisfied isn't shocking. It's well documented that both women and especially men lack a knowledge of female genitalia. Shit, think of the historical misconception that large clitorises or long labia lips, aka beef curtains, are signs of being overused or stretched out or the hoteps who claim black women's periods aren't natural. So obviously when it comes to how vulvas should smell and what should be done if there's an odor, dangerous misconceptions have always abounded. Declared 3-6 Mafia's Juicy J in 1999, slob on my knob. I started to knock, then came the odor, smelled like mush, should have had a whoosh, 
told her to stop and take a douche. Of course, Juicy J isn't a doctor or an influencer, but douching is the most popular in the black community, and I couldn't resist a 3-6 Mafia reference. And while the prevalence of women in America who douche has dropped from 30% in 2000 to approximately 1 in 5, feminine hygiene companies as a whole continue to push their products, advertised as being for the exterior vulva. In 2010, Summer's Eve ran an ad in Women's Day titled Confidence at Work, How to Ask for a Raise, enlisted eight pieces of advice, the first being doing all the things you do to feel your best, including showering with Summer's Eve feminine wash and carrying around packets of Summer's Eve feminine cleansing cloths. The message was, of course, that you may not be eligible for a raise if your pussy has a natural scent. The Honey Pot was founded by Patrice Dixon in 2014 and was special because it was plant-based. In an interesting marketing twist, Dixon said the idea for the wash in the company came to her from an ancestor. And when the Honey Pot changed ingredients in 2022, there was intense backlash by a core audience of Black customers due to a new ingredient that would extend shelf life, but that Black chemists on Twitter rebuked. By 2032, intimate wash products are projected to be a market worth approximately $7.92 billion. Despite the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, not recommending such products for use by anyone. But even as I say that, it must be noted that black women's specific studies of our vulvas and vaginas have only recently been studied at great length. A lot of vaginal health has been filtered through studies with a bias towards white women, but there are ethnic differences. A 2014 study, for instance, found that women of European ancestry are more likely to harbor a lactobacillus-dominated microbiome, whereas African-American women are are more likely to exhibit a diverse microbial profile. Per the study, ethnicity, pregnancy, and alcohol use correlated significantly with the relative abundance of bacterial vaginosis-associated species. Trends between microbial profiles and smoking and number of sexual partners were observed. However, these associations were not statistically significant. In addition to being more likely to develop BV, black women are more likely to have recurring yeast infections. Knowing how sensitive our are, perhaps this is why so many of us tend to have the same visceral reactions of disgust when people are careless with their pH balance. And also, maybe this is why so much steadfast public displays of hygiene occur when someone Black doesn't follow hygiene rules. While Black social media users continually argue over hygiene practices, from how often to wash and replace rags, to whether or not B. Simone was trolling for marketing purposes, white people casually mention less than stellar hygiene practices like not washing legs and taking more shits and having more sex in a year than they do showers. No, I didn't make that up. Someone tweeted their record for 2022. They did it proudly. They put it all out on the timeline. They do not live under the shadow of the racism that deemed black people inherently dirty. The same racism that made many enslaved people live in unhygienic conditions. In an essay by a white preventative medicine and public health physician who makes no mention of bowel movements, he explains why he doesn't shower. You stop smelling bad. I mean, you don't smell like rose water or Axe body spray, but you don't smell like BO either. You just smell like a person. I've been at enough packed clubs, bars, and airports in my life to tell you that people stink. This guy's primary incentive for not showering was winning back the time that showers take, which seems to be a hefty price for making people smell the sweat, shit, and dirt caked on your orifices. 
Then there are other takes that caring about hygiene is classist and that being offended by body odor is problematic. In this view, poor people are seen as the literal great unwashed who don't care about hygiene because they're too busy trying to survive. On one hand, there are extremely impoverished people, particularly children, who lack hygiene care access, something that many school counselors note every year when having community charity drives and fundraisers. But on the other hand, considering the rich celebs who brag about skipping basic hygiene, making a conscious choice to go without washing your ass when you have the tools to do so is not noble or unslanderable. Wrote Nicole Froyo, these quirky confessions of bad personal hygiene are seldom about access or the dehumanization of being seen as dirty. They're about some kind of personal freedom rhetoric. Not washing your legs or not taking a shower every day is not class rebellion, but a display of which bodies are allowed to be unwashed without stigma attached. So I said earlier, people be stinking, especially to us lucky mm. sons of bitches with very sensitive noses. I smell when you haven't brushed your teeth. I smell when you eat in large amounts of garlic. And I can also smell when you spritz expensive perfume over weak old sweat. You're not obligated to smell good for me, but I'm not buying that most non-sociopathic people are consciously choosing to have offensive body odor. Public schools historically have not taught full body cleanliness, nor do they teach that some foods like fish and garlic, for instance, can cause vaginal and body odors for some people. People get comfortable in their own scent and hygiene habits, and that can be hard to break by adulthood. Most people rely on parents, friends, and advertisers telling them how they smell. If they feel comfortable enough squeezing in a question at a 30-minute gynecologist appointment, maybe they will, if they can afford it, you know. But a lot of people have been on their own. And when it comes to the hygiene Olympics on social media, I'd like for us to be gentler with people who have poor hygiene habits by making hygiene info more available without being condescending. It'd also be great if we could recognize that lack of self-hygiene from poor mental health, prominently depression, by people who otherwise know how to wash. It'd be great if we could extend them grace that life otherwise doesn't seem to be extending. If someone is depressed to the point of suicidal ideation, for example, would it be surprising if they stopped giving a fuck about hygiene? Does this mean not busting out laughing or trading jokes when someone proudly says they don't wash their butt cracks or legs out of like, LOL, a choice? No, or when someone insists that poor people don't wash, a lie, as plenty of poor people will tell you. No, run those jokes. But understanding that sometimes neglect of hygiene is a sign of mental spiraling or depression can be a step forward for destigmatizing mental health overall. I'd also like to see legislation making pads and tampons free, especially in prison and for homeless people, though for everyone would be nice. There are 16.9 million people living in poverty who have periods in the U.S. with about two-thirds happen to choose between buying food or menstrual products. By the way, only four states in New York City provide free tampons and pads to inmates, and only 17 states in Washington, D.C. provide free products to school students. In jails and prisons, there are reports of soap and feminine products being withheld as punishment, which is especially pertinent to black women, because we're three times as likely to be imprisoned more than any race. 
Also in the future, I'd like there to be more research and solutions focused on black vulva owners because often our needs have been sacrificed on the helm of misogyny and racism. What does our more diverse vaginal microbiome mean for current and future vaginal products? Will we one day look back on some of these same contemporary products with the same disbelief as talcum baby powder by Johnson & Johnson, which has been linked to cancer? And as I film this right now, there's literally a period panty company that's being sued for alleged toxicity in its products. Will girls one day be my age and recount their female relatives using Lysol douches and baths? Or will the dutiful gynecologist dispelling vaginal myths on TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube change the next generation? Lastly, will future women desire for their pussies to smell and taste like water? Or like if you like this video, make sure you like and subscribe. I'm pretty sure YouTube has demonetized it, even though I'm gonna do, you know, little. All right, that was dope. Intellectual, intellectual media. That is the base that I'm using, but I'm selecting certain ones um, just to help bring my points home without me having a lot of conversation. I'd rather have her do it. My computer's deciding to freeze on me right now. So we got a little patient. Be a little patient. But um, how y'all doing tonight, man? I see I got some active people in the building. Thank you. I hope people can click like on this. Do me a favor, please click like, y'all. It helps with the algorithms. It helps people find uh, me. <laughs> So we're going to watch a Black Women's History of Hair. All of these different sections and points are connected to exploitation. I hope y'all catching that. I'm very, I love these. I hope you like these too. All right. Let me get these stupid commercials off of here. Often a political signal. Somebody might say, well, damn, we may as well just watch her channel. And I would say, that's cool. And you learned about it, hopefully, from this podcast. I don't care. That's beautiful. I'm just exposing y'all to her if you never heard of her and this information. I just don't believe in reinventing the wheel. I'm a teacher, right? So I like finding resources. I'm a researcher. I'm a master's person, right? So in mastering things, I know how to bring information without me having to redo all this. She already did the work. Now, what I will add is my commentary. And if you'd like to add your commentary, please join in. I love this information. I hope you like learning this information too. Now let's get back to it. Hopefully my stuff's not frozen or justification for someone to make assumptions about our character. But the personal nature of our hair is not up for debate. And researching and writing this video has made that abundantly clear. It was so hard to fit this very full history into an hour long video, but I tried my best. How natural is the Afro? How did enslaved women keep up with their hair? I'm not playing the whole hour, relax. How was black women's hair a trending topic long before social media? What had Angela Davis annoyed with Vibe magazine? How is America discriminated against black hairstyles? And who are the most memorable black hair icons over the years? We'll explore all that and more. So sit back and get comfortable. It's time for a black women's history of hair. As I begin now, as plans even had their communication in Here we go.
kinky hair that existed in Africa was a result of evolution, providing better ventilation in hot climates and insulating the head from the intensity of the sun. By the 15th century, hair was a tool of communication in West African societies, among the bulk of the people who would later make up those kidnapped in the slave trade. Among the Wolof, Mende, Mandinka, Fulani, Yoruba, and others, hair could communicate marital status, religion, ethnic identity, age, wealth, and rank. Some clans even had their own specific hairstyle so that one could look and see immediately what family they hailed from. Among Wolof people, girls who were not of marrying age partially shaved their heads, and recently widowed women stopped doing their hair for a while to de-beautify themselves in a society where hair was central to identity and beauty. How central? Having unkempt or messy hair could translate to being sad, having loose or no morals, or being dirty. The natural hair that we think of today, unbound, long, unruly, free, was not the norm in most cultures. Basically, if you're- Did you hear that? Did y'all hear that? Doing your hair was a status thing. You hear that? We was not wandering around in the bush on some funny shit. The natural hair that we think of today, unbound, long, unruly, free, was not the norm in most cultures. Basically, if your hair wasn't done, it meant something was wrong. Additionally, the importance of hair was demonstrated by the fact. Isn't that still true today? Don't you kind of feel like when you're in a bad mood or in a, in a bad moment in your life, if you, know, you don't do your hair or you're less likely to do your hair? I know a lot of chicks slap on wigs. Did you ever think of the psychology of why women are wearing so many wigs nowadays. We don't feel good about doing our hair. We just rather smack on a wig and play the role in society. You feel me? Let's roll with it. That it was sometimes used for rituals and spells or as talismans for protection. Because hair was so important, the hairdresser was revered in these societies, especially because the grueling work took hours or even days. Clearly, hair was practically, socially, spiritually, and aesthetically significant to our ancestors, just like in many cultures around the world. So it's especially devastating to know that to mark their status as anonymous, non-human merchandise or chattel, most of the 20 million men, women, and children sold into slavery were shaved bald although when she's saying that just remember that she's talking about them ships that went to brazil and central and south america not no slave ships came to america remember that a very small amount they said four percent remember according to that book um, um sugar changed the world check that out 4% came to America, 96% went to the islands in Central and South America. That's important to note. When we when they had the slavery thing, uh, they stole people off the streets that was here, okay? Here already. We've been here for a long time, but let's keep moving. <laughs> years of slavery, when new people could be shipped in from overseas, meaning keeping enslaved people alive was not a priority, there was no regard for hygiene or hair care. Ringworm outbreaks were common and made worse with tightly tied rags used to cover the scabs. On some plantations, enslaved women were not allowed to wear anything but scarves. Colonial Louisiana enacted the Tignon Law in 1786, which required black women to wear headscarves to make them less attractive to white Ain't that some shit? <laughs> they made a law. It was a law, y'all, in Louisiana that women, black women, mixed Creole, whatever, had to wear scarves at all times in public. This is bizarre. Look at this. 
to make us less beautiful. That's some bull. Plantations, enslaved women were not allowed to wear anything but scarves. Colonial Louisiana enacted the Tignon Law in 1786, which required black women to wear headscarves to make them less attractive to white men. The scarf was to be worn by the free and the enslaved black women to dehumanize all of them. Free black women often decorated theirs or used expensive fabric, and the Tignon briefly became a trend among white women. Alleged Did you hear that shit? Don't that always happen? They made it a punishment. And then the girls decide to put flowers and shit on it and create some shit out of it. And then the white girls start rocking it. What in the kizzy from Roots is this? That's, let me just keep going because that shit is bizarre. Beginning How many of y'all have heard that before? Anybody heard that? Press, click, press one in the chat if you've heard those things about the Tignon Law in New Orleans or just in Louisiana. You see, most of Louisiana look like that, okay? But some, when they started marrying white, look more white, and then some marry black and they look more, you know, more Creole, more black, I guess you'd say. But it's a misnomer. We're misnamed, but we'll get into that on another or used expensive fabric, and the tignon briefly became a trend among white women, allegedly beginning with Napoleon Bonaparte's wife, Josephine. The tignon law was no longer in effect after the U.S. took control of Louisiana in 1803, but it's no surprise that in the centuries after, headscarves and bonnets on black women have continued to be considered low class. Enslaved people who worked in the big house or in other positions that put them in close proximity to whites were usually light-skinned and had less kinky hair and higher expectations to keep it neat. Without access to proper hair care, many enslaved people resorted to using toxic substances like kerosene, butter, and animal fat, like hog lard, on their fragile strands. And because they didn't have combs like the ones used in Africa, they used a sheep fleece carding tool a lot. And for many, hair maintenance meant frequent braids, scarves, and dry misshapen afros. Damaged, kinky, and curly hair was regularly denounced, especially when in comparison to the tresses of the people born from rape and exploitation from white enslavers color okay hold up y'all know who that is hold up and curly hair was regularly denounced especially when in comparison to the tresses of the people born y'all know come on tell me the name if you know who this is in this portrait give me 10 seconds anybody okay this is sally hemmings who is Sally Hemings? Does anybody know anybody? Sally Hemings? Let me put that name in the chat. Sally Hemings. Well, you heard of Thomas Jefferson, right? Okay, so Tommy Jefferson. Tommy Jefferson. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson was, you know, president of the United States. And he was married to a lovely woman, young woman named Martha. Well, Martha had a slave named Sally. That's her. And side note, Sally is actually what we would call today her half-sister. They were sisters. Uh, Sally Hemings and Martha, What they had the same father. So this is a portrait of Sally Hemings. Tommy Jefferson had 11 babies with this woman. Okay. He has Sally. He built a bedroom next to his bedroom with Martha for Sally. He had 11 children with Sally. Seven of them survived. 
And so do y'all remember our Oprah when, when she had the black Jeffersons and the white Jeffersons on the show? Remember that? Yeah, Thomas Jefferson. This was his woman. And look, when he went to Paris, he took Sally. He didn't take Martha. Why he taking Martha's slave? Hmm, I wonder. So anyways, that's her. So I think Martha was like 15. Sally was like, yeah, Martha was like 17. Sally was like 15. And he started hollering from rape and exploitation from white enslavers. Colorism was compounded by this comparison of good versus bad hair. And black women who were mixed with white or native blood often had wavier in our longer hair, which was noted by several interviewees in the enslaved narratives. The concept of good hair, which was straight or wavy, long and unkinky, versus bad hair, kinky, curly, and or short, materialized. Good hair became a fantasy and desire for some. Like, for example, in a Bible story, 75-year-old formerly enslaved woman, Charity Moore, was told by her father, Isaac, on a Winsboro, South Carolina plantation. She recalled, Adam was a black man. Eve was ginger cake color, with long black hair down to her ankles. That Adam had just one worriment in the garden, and that was his kinky hair. Adam played with Eve's hair, run his fingers through it, and sigh. Eve couldn't do that with his kinky hair. In this retelling of the Garden of Eden, Eve was told by the snake that if they both ate the forbidden fruit, Adam's hair would grow as long, as black, and straight as Eve's. According to Isaac and Charity Moore, Adam choked twice, gained an Adam's apple, and woke up the next day white. In this fusion of folklore and religion, along with internalized hatred of black features by the 19th century, we see that enslaved people were carving their own black American identity. This culmination of past African traditions and contemporary survival tactics would help some of them visualize a future after slavery and kindle a desire and hope for freedom. But it would also impact our beliefs and behavior in centuries to come. After the end of the transatlantic slave trade in 1808, suddenly it was more important for domestic enslavers to have healthier appearing people for sale. And by some accounts, grooming standards improved as more enslaved were given Sundays off. Several enslaved people recalled only being able to do their personal chores and maintenance, including their hair on Sunday. For the enslaved who attended church services on this holy day, being extra careful about appearance for the occasion was common. Some enslaved people mentioned doing their hair for other special occasions, like one woman named Cena Moore, also in Winsboro, South Carolina, who mentioned putting sweet shrubs in her hair on her wedding day and marveling that it held them all night and the next night too. As the ability to put time into one's hair grew slightly stronger, granting a sense of pride, the removal of hair as punishment was common. A Mrs. Julia Rush from St. Simons Island, Georgia, noted that when her enslavers wife incorrectly thought she was quote being intimate with her husband she cut off all of julia's long and straight hair recalled 97 year old victor duhan his mother who was an enslaved hairdresser in lafayette parish louisiana was told by her enslaver's son that he would shave her head if she didn't do what he wanted before forcing her into a sexual relationship clearly hair was important. Hair was sacred not just in a way that spoke to one's humanity, but it also was used by hoodoo conjurers and practitioners on
on plantations. One man mentioned in Texas that conjurers would mix hair and brass nails and thimbles and needles. It has also been said, though it's not verifiable, that some enslaved people who ran away used braids for maps or to transport food. Meanwhile, among free black populations in Boston and Philadelphia, black people who did their hair in similar fashions to white people, whether to imitate for respectability or because they thought it looked good, were mocked and criticized as uppity or pretentious in the emerging minstrel circuit. There were early free black hairdressers who made good money servicing white clientele. Think voodoo priestess Marie Laveau in New Orleans, who collected tea from her clients and used it for the basis of her conjure work and blackmailing. I'll be the biggest smile anybody ever sees anytime, all the time. I've been talking this whole time and I didn't realize I was on mute. My bad. Okay, what I was saying was, how does this relate to the topic that it relates? Because, you know, hair is part of our beauty. And then we're gonna get into, like, you have to have context to things. So this is going from way back, it's going all the way to the present. And it's gonna explain how certain folk, you know, in the hair industry exploit our wig buying power. <laughs> yeah, it's going to get into that. So let's just, it's context. You need the context of things so you can have a better understanding of what's going on. After emancipation, many of the free black people who had been so before the war quickly found a way to reestablish a social hierarchy, calling themselves bona fide free. In their marriage rules and some established clubs and churches, physical requirements, light skin, and good hair were unfortunately all too common. There are stories of clubs and churches performing not just paper bag tests to perpetuate colorism, but comb tests in which combs had to smoothly pass through a potential member's hair. This same rejection of monoracial black features was also seen in mainstream white society, where kinky and braided hair was negatively associated with slavery. In the late 19th and early 20th century, advertisements for skin lightening and hair straightening abounded. Concurrently, black innovators searched for a way for black women to get the coveted straight hair. There was no mass market of goods for black women, especially those far in the country, to do their hair with. Just as during slavery, breakage and baldness from high stress, nutrient deficiency, poor hygiene, and a lack of resources was common, so was experimenting. Some women mixed live and potato for straightened hair with disastrous results. In Texas, a man named Oliver recalled his mother and other women fishing for eels, stripping the skin off and wrapping it around their hair to make it curly. Among older black women in the South who had lived during slavery, they were perfectly satisfied with braids or hair coverings. A bunch of WPA and slave narratives detail the formerly enslaved women having snow white or white hair arranged in braids or nightcaps that enveloped their heads. In 1937, Durham, North 
North Carolina, a one Miss Johnson was described almost admirably as small and dainty with perfect features and snow white hair worn in two long braids down her back. She wore enormous heart-shaped earrings, apparently of heavy gold. Braids and hair coverings would continue to be associated with the survivors of slavery. It would be notable when the first black woman, Cicely Tyson, appeared on TV in braids in 1962 because most black women outside of rural areas did not publicly wear braids. And hair coverings were used in post-antebellum advertisements for products meant to stir nostalgia for the good old days of enslavement, like Aunt Jemima, which was founded in 1889. From the Reconstruction era onward, there was a burgeoning market of black women desiring straight hair for styles like the Gibson Girl Upsweep. Having such a hairstyle meant one had the time and resources to maintain it, which could translate to respectability. In the few black publications of the early 20th century, like Half Century Magazine and The Colored American Magazine, black women's hair was straightened, projecting an ideal and reflecting desire. Complained educator, activist, and feminist Nanny Helen Burroughs in 1904, what every woman who straightens out needs is not her appearance changed, but her mind changed. If women would use half of the time they spend trying to get white to get better, the race would move forward. That was said in 1904? That sounds a little familiar to me. In 1900, Mary L. Johnson and her doctor husband began selling Johnson's hair food from Boston and eventually opened a beauty school and hair store. Their products, ranging from 25-cent itch cure or shampoo paste to 50-cent hair grower, would be advertised in Alabama, Virginia, Missouri, and Colorado. And sometime between 1905 and 1909, Garrett A. Morgan, the future inventor of the precursor to the gas mask, noticed the chemical he was using in inadvertently straightened curly wooden fibers. Morgan would go on to manufacture and distribute hair straighteners and other hair care products like hair coloring and a hot comb through the G.A. Morgan Hair Refining Company. Hot combs had been invented in France in the 19th century, but didn't catch on in America until the 20th. Garrett had originally sold his hair straightening product to men before finding a strong consumer base in black women. But Morgan wasn't the first black person to tap into the hair straightening market. In 1900, a 31-year-old Illinois orphan named Annie Malone debuted The Wonderful Hair Grower, which she began selling door-to-door in Lovejoy, Illinois. The 50 cent to $1 hair grower was made with Vaseline, sulfur, orris root, quinine, and bergamot oil. Malone named her business Poro, which has been linked to a Mende word meaning devotional society. Malone created an empire by teaching women around the country, especially in the South, how to sell and use her products, offering incentives like jewelry and gifts. Those who completed the Poro training course Courses, recruited others in open salons and their own beauty schools. In Cleveland, Poro graduate Edith Wilkins opened the first Wilkins School of Cosmetology. Another Poro recruit and later saleswoman was Sarah Breedlove, aka Madam C.J. Walker. By some disputed accounts, Madam C.J. Walker took the Poro formula and started her own company, An Empire. In 1909, she unveiled her own. She literally stole that lady's product and started selling it. <laughs> That's bold, ain't it? But that's not that's not how they tell the story. Though. Line of hair grower, pressing oil made with Vaseline and ox marrow, veggie shampoo. Let's move forward. Perished in the 1921 massacre. Look your best. You owe it to your race. Most susceptible to the messages about inferior black hair were, of course, 
children. Many black authors, both in real and fictional writing, discuss the desire to be one with the white beauty ideal. Maya Angelou, who grew up in the 30s, recalled in her 1969 autobiography, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, wouldn't they be surprised when one day I woke up out of my black ugly dream and my real hair, which was long and blonde, would take the place of the kinky mask that mama wouldn't let me straighten? Because I was really white and because a cruel fairy stepmother who was understandably jealous of my beauty had turned me into a too big Negro girl with nappy black hair, broad feet, and a space between her teeth that would hold a number two pencil. How powerful is Cox Energy? Wow. What so what do y'all think of this content? Make sure y'all click like, y'all click like, click like, click like, click like. It's good to share it too. I love it. You share it. This is very good information. This is intellectual media. I really enjoy her uh her research and her graphics. And so I was just like, why am I reinventing the wheel when she's already done all this amazing work? So I'm just gonna do commentary. But please go to her page, her channel, and support, subscribe, watch all her videos. They're very interesting. I mean, if you're into that, I'm into this stuff. You know, I really like history, black history especially, and then particularly women history. So I hope you find this interesting. All right. According to historian Noliwe Brooks, over 50% of the ads in the most prominent black publications of the mid 20th century were for cosmetics and hair care products. To be clear, even before this period, while Annie Malone and Madam C.J. Walker made their millions, most black Americans still used white owned products. And sadly, after many black owned companies folded during the Great Depression and World War II, white companies had an even bigger market share. But there were some promising newcomers like Bronner Brothers, established in 1947, and creators of a long-running trade show and many of the items under your mama and your grandmama's and my bathroom sink. And they still have trade shows today. But back in the 50s, black women who wanted to achieve the short and sleek looks of black celebrities like Pearl Bailey, Lena Horne, and Dorothy Dandridge had more products than ever to choose from, thanks to white companies who saw how lucrative the market was. This included not just hair straighteners and creams, but also falsies, which was slang for wigs and hair attachments. Wigs have been used throughout history from the Egyptians who invented them to 16th to 17th century Europeans and in Korea where wigs were reserved for women of a high social status. But the mass production of wigs in the mid 20th century meant anyone could wear one. And for black women, there were a bunch to choose from. It was as simple as placing a mail order. A 1947 Ebony Magazine article reported that 4 million black women, especially in the Southeast, were buying an average of two falsies a year. 10% of these attachments were red, gray, white, or platinum, and the other 90% were blue-black, brown-black, or dark brown locks. It was also mentioned that when compared with the hair attachments available in 1919, these were less kinky, more wavy, finer textured. It's no surprise that next to the article about wigs and attachments is an ad for lighter and lovelier skin. From the 1920s through the 60s, on the campuses of HBCUs, colorism and an aversion to nappy hair was evident in the types of students admitted. And those allowed to join HBCUs, HBCUs, for those who may not know, stands for Historically Black Colleges and Universities. And my mother, she still be talking salty about it. Always tells me the story about one of my great uncles, my grandfather's brothers, you know, they're all educated. They own a lot of land. One of my uncles, great uncles, was the first black pharmacist in Chicago, stuff like that, right? So, but my one of my uncles, Uncle Jesse, I believe, 
you know, they would turn them down. They wouldn't let, if you were dark skinned, they didn't really let you into black universities, y'all, back in the day. You had to be light skinned. You see who's popping in the picture, right? You had to be light skinned. They didn't let dark skinned um, people into the schools. For a long ass time. For less kinky, more wavy, finer textured. It's no surprise that next to the article about wigs and attachments is an ad for lighter and lovelier. Like even when I lived in Louisiana, I mean, I remember we were looking at schools for my eldest stepdaughter, Bill Keys, and we were looking at Tulane, we were looking at Xavier, we were looking at UNO, we were looking at um, Southern, we were looking at LSU. And everybody kept saying, like, all the black people go to Southern and all the white people go to LSU. Well, you know, my kid ended up going to LSU, so whatever. But um, it was just that kind of thing. Your skin. From the 1920s through the 60s, on the campuses of HBCUs, colorism and an aversion to nappy hair was evident in the types of students admitted and those allowed to join Greek organizations. It has been noted that fraternities had color taxes at parties where men would have to pay more if their date was dark. And our kind of people, Lawrence Otis Graham, raised in the classist circles of the black elite, mentioned fraternity parties where only those with hair as straight as a ruler were allowed inside. In 1949, Christina Jenkins, a 29-year-old with a science degree from Leland College, began developing the nylon scalp base and the technique that would lead to the sew-in. At the time, women often kept weave in place with bulky bobby pins and clips. The Shaker Heights Cleveland resident filed a patent in 1951 for the hair weave, which formally served the purpose of permanently attaching commercial hair to live hair. Jet Magazine mentioned in 1952 that Jenkins caused a trend of women wearing rainbow-colored hair attachments in Cleveland, where she would eventually run Christina's Hair Weave Penthouse Salon until 1993. By 1964, Jenkins was demonstrating her snap-on hair process in public spaces, like the Ohio Association of Beauticians. But Christina's process was not necessarily accessible for many Black women. The process could cost between $200 to $500 or $1,700 to $4,200 in today's money at various salons who offered the service. In 1969, a British hair salon bragged that it was the only place in England entitled to use Christina's miracle preparation. And Jenkins received a cut of everything. According to a 1968 article that discussed Jenkins' invention being popular among baldies, particularly white men and actors, Jenkins had perfected her invention to, quote, allow Negro women to attach long straight hair to short kinky hair as a substitute for ineffective and frequently chemically dangerous hair straightener. Did y'all hear that? This is the lady who invented the hair weave, the sew-in. Have y'all even heard of this lady? I mean, you know, everybody rocks her stuff that she invented. You should know who she is. And look, you know how we always say it's a, um, what do we always say? It's, it's a, uh, it, it's a protective style, and that's what she's saying. And frequently chemically dangerous hair straighteners. She's saying you could rock that straight hair weave instead of putting chemicals in your hair. It's a protective style, baby. 
years. But the cost of Christina Jenkins' hair weave, which needed to be tuned up every six weeks, meant most black women went with wigs. So in the 50s and 60s, black women were seeing themselves represented in a wider variety of ways. From advertising in popular magazines like Ebony and Jet, in the vintage beauty trade magazine, which focused on hairstylist news and products beginning in 1954, to regional black beauty pageants and events like the Ebony Fashion Fair, which was founded in 1958. The Ebony Fashion Fair is, of course, renowned for bringing high fashion to middle-class black Americans, whom designers ignored for fear that white women would stop wearing their brands if black women were seen in them. And the fashion show traveled by Greyhound bus across the country during 12-week runs twice a year. Unsurprisingly, most of the fashion shows featured straight hair, press and curled hair, and updos. In 1973, Johnson noticed that models mixing foundation to create the right blend for their hues created Fashion Fair Cosmetics, the first cosmetics brand sold globally that catered to darker skin tones. By this period, afros were incorporated into Fashion Fair's advertising and shows. How had the afro gained so much traction? Afros had been on the heads of a few black people, mainly artists, trendsetters, and intellectuals as early as the 1950s, with dancers like Katherine Dunham, Ruth Beckford, and Pearl Primus rocking them, as well as the rhythm and blues singer Odetta. In the 60s, the community as a whole was discarding the term Negro in favor for black, which people were declaring much more frequently was beautiful. Every year from 1962 to 1972, on August 17th, Marcus Garvey Day, the Grandassa Naturally Show featured black women, all with natural hair, and even more importantly, dark skin. There was lots of controversy because we were protesting how, in Ebony Magazine, you couldn't find an Ebony girl, said Kwame Braithwaite, the creator, a first-generation Barbados American photojournalist and activist who formalized Black as Beautiful and helped destroy the term Negro. Jazz singer Abby Lincoln, another notable artist who rocked an Afro early, was a collaborator on the Naturally shows along with other members of the African Jazz Art Society and studios. The Black is Beautiful campaign was needed. Scores of Black children like a young Asada Shakur were used to calling each other Black as an insult, hurling the term nappy and seeing Afros as ugly and unkempt. She wrote, we had never been exposed to any other point of view or any other standard of beauty. The sentiments of Marcus Garvey, Nanny Helen Burroughs, and others were revived and reverberated in the decade of Black power. Initially, to many, wearing a natural meant making a conscious choice to make a political statement. But an Afro was not necessarily seen as a natural hairstyle from the motherland by everyone. With the 1970 article quoting an annoyed Tanzanian government-owned newspaper editor who was upset that young African girls were sporting the hairstyle because it comes from Black America. He used Angela Davis's picture to illustrate his point, which reportedly upset Black Americans living in Tanzania at the time. This beautiful expression of Black American beauty was criticized as militant expression of defiance, a shallow trend, and also praised for both. Activist and scholar Angela Davis would complain about the Afro devolving into trendiness in 1994, saying, I'm remembered as a hairdo. It is humiliating because it reduces a politics of liberation to a politics of fashion. Annoyed that a young man didn't recognize her until he remembered her with an Afro, she wrote, it is both humiliating and astounding to discover that a single generation after the events that constructed me as a public personality, I am remembered as a hairdo. Further bristling her brush was the fact that the New York Times had 
just listed her as one of the 50 top hairstyle trendsetters of the 20th century. But the afro had been commodified and in a sense watered down long before the 90s. In 1966, the conservative 11,000 student Howard University crowned its first natural haired homecoming queen. And two years later, the Hilltop newspaper asked its student body if the afro or the natural was an estimated 300 of the 11,000 students were rocking naturals, and one girl said she'd feel like a hypocrite if she didn't wear one. And another one said it was easier than setting it and sitting under a dryer. So for her, it was about convenience and not a political statement. Eldridge Cleaver, the rapist and future Republican, said that black liberation would be impossible if we did not embrace our crinkly hair. This completely ignored the discrimination aspect. United Airlines fired a Chicago-based flight attendant named Deborah Renwick for having an afro in 1969. Clearly, the choice to wear the afro was subjective, and it was never a guarantee of someone's politics. Wrote Asada Shakur, you can be a revolutionary thinking person and have your hair fried up, and you can have an afro and be a traitor to black people. So how are black stylists coping? After all, black beauty salons have long been powerful sources of community building, philanthropy, and business investment. For instance, Madam C.J. Walker gave money to the black YMCA, bought for an anti-lynch bill, gave money for HBCU scholarships, and organized a black hairstylist convention in 1917. So when naturals came in a style, more than a few stylists were a little worried. Wrote historian Susanna Walker, some beauty salon owners complained that afros would ruin their businesses, while others rushed to accommodate patrons desiring the style. A 1970 study by the African American Beauty Culturist League found that there had been a 20% decline in beauty salon visits the previous year, with the decline even higher at 30 to 35% in urban areas like New York, Chicago, and LA. Hairstylists needed to adapt, and many went on record in those early years insisting that women needed to get their natural shampooed, combed, and trimmed properly, or they'd risk breakage. For black people whose hair does not naturally form afros and white people who wanted to join in on the trend, there was a way to get the look. The self-proclaimed Bush doctor, aka Nathaniel Mathis, began giving people chemically induced afros in 1969. While the afro gained greater prominence than ever before, the vast majority of black women never wore naturals as a political statement or identified with radical politics. With Afro-American historian William L. Vandenberg estimating 10% of black Americans supported political separatism and or the Black Panthers during this period. The Afro continued to evolve past its history as a plantation era necessity, past the 1950s era artist trend, past its brief moment as a political statement, and fully into a style statement into the 1970s, especially in the heady discos and black exploitation films of the decade. One of the most famous Afros of the period was not on the heads of revolutionary leaders, most of them now dead in exile or tucked away on college campuses. <laughs> so they love to bring the OGs from the 70s back and, you know, yeah, they do the college circuits. They give speeches in the women's studies classes or sometimes if you're lucky during Black History Month. I've had those great experiences at Lumbee State. Let's see, Jay says, could you imagine if everyone started rocking an afro, it would cause a frenzy. I mean, it's kind of like that to a degree. The wigs are still winning. Weaves are still winning, kind of. But there are more natural heads now. And I think they're more into dreadlocks, but... 
on the celebrity and sex symbol Pam Greer, who infamously pulled a gun from her afro in Foxy Brown. In the caricature of black exploitation films and the rising fashion and beauty industry, afros were definitely no longer representative of black radical power. In 1970, Beauty Trade magazine hosted a natural competition hair show so that barbers and stylists could show all of the ways natural hair could be manipulated. The winning look was the sculpted afro with the widow's peak on the bottom left. Clearly, the natural was no longer so natural. An industry popped up as early as 1969 to provide maintenance for the once radical hairstyle, from glossy picks to afro sheen and blowout kits. Those last two were big money makers for the Black-owned Johnson Products Company. She is Black essence, and her beautiful natural hair is her crowning glory. Today's beautiful queen uses afro sheen. Afro-Sheen concentrated shampoo, pampers, and conditions as it cleans. JPC began sponsoring Soul Train in 1971, where big and blown out afros could be seen bouncing to the hottest music. JPC would be moving 40 million in product by 1976. There were also, of course, afro wigs, which Beauty Trade magazine encouraged stylists to sell alongside hair processing services so that women could have more choices and so that they still keep spending money on their hair underneath the wigs. Afromania slowed down by the end of the 70s and the desire for straight hair remained strong. In 1971, the dark and lovely lie relaxer was introduced. For years, black women had straightened their hair with products that followed along the vein of Annie Malone's or Madam C.J. Walker's, but heat, water, and sweat always threatened to turn back hair to its original state. The dark and lovely relaxer and products that would follow promised to alter the hair itself. And there were also kitty relaxers on the market. In the same year that dark and lovely premiered, Essence Magazine, which had been established the year before, featured its first cover girl not in an afro or braids. She had long and straight hair. The Look, anybody else had a kitty kit? I think I had a kitty kit when I was in fourth grade. But anyway, Dark and Lovely Relaxer was a hit along with Johnson Products Ultra Sheen Relaxer. But by the late 70s, women were noticing that these lie relaxers were stripping their tresses of important proteins, leaving it brittle and thin. In 1975, the Federal Trade Commission ordered Johnson Products, which had been selling hair straightening products since the 50s, to create a warning label on its relaxer mentioning the lie. But it didn't tell Revlon to do the same thing for 22 months, which damaged Johnson Products' reputation and helped Revlon gain a leg up in the black hair care industry. Manufacturers would follow up with gentle relaxers made without lye, but still toxic products like potassium hydroxide. Into the 80s, as conservatism took hold, discussed intellectual does the 70s and 80s, and the employment opportunities for everyone shifted into professional positions and service and retail jobs where hair conformity was expected, the sales of relaxers rose. Hair salons, more numerous than ever, continued to be integral to the black experience as new products and black celebrities rocking trends from the Jerry Curl, which was $200 to $300 at a salon, but $8 for ProLine's Curly Kit, to the asymmetrical stacked blowout influenced the masses. All the latest looks could be seen at hair shows, which were growing in popularity, like the Hair Wars in Detroit. This popular showcase by David Humphreys, a promoter and DJ, allowed local hairstylists the chance to show off extreme styles in packed clubs. It was camp, camp, 
and more camp. For real, look at this, this is camp. Black Americans also had their spin on big hair with lush and voluminous tresses rocked by Oprah, Whitney Houston, Janet Jackson, and Patti LaBelle. In the previous decade, dreadlocks, which have existed for centuries, had become popularized in America by Bob Marley. And in the 80s to early 90s, were seen on Whoopi Goldberg, Alice Walker, Tracy Chapman, and Toni Morrison. Toni, who often included themes of colorism, beauty, and self-esteem in her writing, wrote in 1977's Song of Solomon, how can he not love your hair? It's the same hair that grows out of his own armpits. The same hair that crawls up out his crotch and on up his stomach, all over his chest. The very same. It grows out his nose, over his lips, and if he ever lost his razor, it would grow all over his face. It's all over his head, Hagar. It's his hair too. He gotta love it. While there was more hair flexibility in the 1980s, many businesses and schools continued to be rigid about braids. In 1981, a court case named Rogers versus American Airlines upheld company rights to ban braids. When the plaintiff, Renee Rogers, insisted that her hairstyle was important to herself and black women's identity, American Airlines claimed that the hairstyle, Fulani braids, was likely inspired by Bo Derek in the movie 10. That hairstyle on Bo Derek caused members of the media to fawn embarrassingly, with Newsweek declaring what Farrah Fawcett did for the cascading mane, Bo Derek is doing for braids, echoing sugary and unbelievable commentary that would be thrown at Kim Kardashian's Bo braids decades later. A noticeable portion of white women rushed to get the style. And as it turns out, Bo Derek and her husband lived in a majority black neighborhood, and she definitely had appropriated the hairstyle from the local women because her husband enjoyed the look. Roberta Flack scoffed, black women were wearing cornrows long before Bo Derek. This detachment of blackness from our own hairstyle had legal consequences. The court sided with American Airlines and denied that Renee Rogers' hairstyle was culturally relevant, believing that she was influenced by a white woman in a movie. In 1987, when a woman named Cheryl Tatum was fired from the Hyatt Regency in Crystal City, Virginia for refusing to remove her braids, her manager said, I can't understand why you would want to wear your hair that way. Tatum originally had chemically relaxed hair when she began working for Hyatt, but the damage it did caused her to cut it all off. When it grew back, she turned to braids. Tatum and two other women's lawsuit was dismissed. With the court ruling, the Hyatt's rule against braided hairstyles was a part of the original employment agreement, which rested on a Supreme Court case ruling that employees could not bring a civil rights case against an employer for racial discrimination that took place after they were hired. What the fuck? Numerous other workplaces and schools banned braids through the 80s and beyond, with a 1987 New York Times article mentioning the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, American Airlines, and the Marriott Corporation. But black people obsessed with respectability politics also banned braids. The Atlanta Urban League and the Howard University Hospital, for example, banned braids. Complained a business education teacher named Wanda Pearson Jeter, who turned down a job when they said she needed to remove her braids. I question the Urban League as to why they are still perpetuating that Blacks must look like someone else and discourage any reflection of heritage. In 1988, Spike Lee depicted the good hair versus bad hair debate, as well as the routine colorism at HBCUs in his cult classic, School Days. Talk about good and bad hair, you're talking oh, we're not playing that. Nope, 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 nope. The racist Aunt Jemima image was updated from the cheerful mammy figure wearing a scarf to rocking relaxed tresses, while newspapers mused that hair extensions, costing from $90 to $400, 
were growing in popularity among black women, with the service even being performed by white hairstylists. as I'll explore, Intellectual Does the 90s was a true blossoming of black celebrity culture. In 1992, Hype Hair, the most popular hair magazine, was founded. Style icon Lil' Kim was known for changing her hair color to match her outfits. There were braids on the big screen with Janet Jackson and Poetic Justice, and in the flurry of styles on the small screen worn by Brandy and Moesha. Her braids, particularly her super thin micros, reflected an evolution of the hairstyle. It was now common to use extensions, making the the concept of them being natural a little murky. Grammy award-winning Lauren Hill, who rapped about silly girls selling their souls and rocking European weaves, proudly wore dreadlocks on the cover of her album and on the red carpet. In the season two episode of Sister Sister called Hair Today in 1994, Tamara gets her hair straightened and is treated better by the popular clique in school. That same year, Angela Davis's article about the watering down of the Afro mentions her discomfort with the March Vibe magazine issue, dressing up actress Sidna Williams as her. She wrote, particularly unsettled by Williams recreating her widely publicized FBI wanted poster that made the Afro go viral. My legal case is emptied of all content so that it can serve as a commodified backdrop for advertising. On the heads of black female celebrities in the emerging celeb genre of video vixens were $2,000 to $10,000 lace front wigs. Remember when cheap lace fronts were $2,000 and held in glass display cases at the local beauty supply store? And on the heads of the women inspiring the celebrities and duping them in lower class environments were yakky sew-ins and quick weaves. Quality human hair, always worn by those who look down on synthetic, was increasingly being shipped in from India and by the 2000s, Brazil, and would be sometimes collected by nefarious or criminal means, causing ethical concerns for some over the wearing of human hair. Also during the 90s, everyone had a mom or a cousin or aunt who rocked the super short cuts with intricate curls and waves, the kind of style that must be adoringly maintained monthly or even bi-weekly. This meant the relationship between the hairstylist and the client was at strong levels. I remember sitting with my Nana for her twice a month hair appointment growing up. Her hair lovingly cut, colored, and styled by the same woman for over 15 years. The kind of client-customer relationship where they knew each other's families and exchanged Christmas and birthday gifts. Speaking of hairstylists, at the end of the 20th century, the government was increasingly cracking down on black people's abilities to braid hair professionally. Braiding is unlike other hair care services that require chemical use and knowledge, tools, or cutting off hair. But state governments began rolling out new licensing requirements. In 39 states and in D.C., braiders are required to obtain a license. The necessary hours required for such a license ranges from a doable six in South Carolina and a whopping 2,100 hours in Iowa, Nebraska, and South Dakota. And in 24 states, hair braiders are required to get costly and time consuming cosmetology licenses, which can cost $5,000 to $20,000. And they learn little about braiding, instead made to learn skills that they have no desire to use. So what about black hair products? In the early 90s, Shark Products, a white-owned company, was producing the popular line of African pride hair products. They sued two companies, Africa Natural and Mother Africa, both black-owned, because they used the word African and 
didn't have the colors red, black, and green in their ads. One lawsuit settled out of court and the other case was dropped. In response, in 1994, members of the American Health and Beauty AIDS Institute put out an ad to deter black consumers from buying African pride. They said, the best way to be sure the products you buy are manufactured by a black company is to look for the proud lady, unveiling a new symbol, the abai. The Institute had been founded in 1981 to help black-owned businesses thrive in the growing consumer market. A 1996 study found that black women spent three times as much money on hair care than white women, and a 1997 report revealed that black people spent $225 million annually on hair weaving services and products. Four years earlier, the Washington Post pointed out that hair care companies owned by African Americans captured 60% of the 390 million ethnic hair care category last year, an improvement from the late 80s, when black-owned firms had about 50% of the market. But in the 90s, as the shark products fiasco showed, more non-black-owned companies were trying to take a piece of the pie. For example, Revlon unveiled its poorly named and quickly scrapped Kente creations. Johnson Products, which had been the instrumental creator of Afrosheen and one of Abai's biggest members, was sold to a white-owned manufacturing company. Meanwhile, Revlon purchased African Pride in 1998, and Shark Products CEO Brian Marks went on to create Dr. Miracles. That company, which I'm sure a bunch of us remember, was again littered with black motifs because it was definitely for black women. By this time, many black hair companies were selling to conglomerates and not just white ones. Asian ownership of the black hair care market would grow to 45 to 60 percent in the modern day. Asians, particularly Koreans, also began establishing their foothold in black beauty supply stores in the late 90s and early 2000s. It's estimated that Korean Americans who got their leg in the door due to their connections with the Korean and Indian hair markets own approximately 70% of beauty supply stores nationwide. This outsider ownership of such a sacred and typically black peddled commodity has harmed black Asian relations. During the 1992 LA riots, a response to the beating of Rodney King and the murder of Latasha Harlins by a Korean convenience store owner, many of the Korean-owned stores destroyed were beauty supplies. In the modern day, less than 10% of black beauty supply stores are owned by black women. To close out the 90s, in 1998, a white teacher in Bushwick, Brooklyn, then described by the Washington Post as a gritty black and Hispanic neighborhood notorious for drugs and graffiti, which is crazy if you've been to Bushwick lately, outraged black parents when she read the book Nappy Hair to her third grade students. The book, which affirmed nappy hair and sought to destigmatize both the word and kinky tresses, would go on to sell over 100,000 copies. The white teacher resigned from her job before the outrage died down. The next year, two of 19-year-old Venus Williams' signature beads came off of her braids during a match in the Australian Open. After the second bead fell, the umpire penalized Williams a point for causing a disturbance, prompting her to yell at him. There's no disturbance. No one's being disturbed. She was booed by the crowd and, frustrated and unfocused, lost the match. The hair of Serena and Venus Williams had been contentious since they entered the scene in the mid-90s. And the braids of beads secured with aluminum foil and or rubber bands were eventually replaced after this incident. To be fair, I remember how unpleasant it was when my beads and plastic bows would smack me in the eyes and face as a youth. So I doubt the Williams sisters who were doing a bunch more moving in the court than I was missed their beads. And then now, do you remember, remember anybody, anybody remember hearing that? Like when Mr. Williams, you know, their dad as their coach. He put the beads on them because they would smack him in the face if they moved too heavy. He was trying to teach them to be smooth, you know what I mean? Don't bounce and bob so much. Otherwise, them bees going to jack you up.
Did y'all know that? Okay, let's keep going. Next decade, the internet would make black women's hair culture more accessible while black people simultaneously continue to dominate media. In the first half of the decade, the importance of the black salon and barbershop would be fictionalized in Nora's Hair Salon, Hair Show, the Ice Cube created barbershop franchise featuring the world's worst argument against reparations. Seriously, if you forgot that scene, go and run it back because it's awful. And one of my favorite problematic Queen Latifah movies, Beauty Shop. These movies saw the main characters grappling with the struggles of owning these cornerstones of black culture in modern society. And by the way, speaking of Queen Latifah, she has always been a hairstyle icon for me since her debut in 1989. And her living single character, Khadija James, stayed with her hair laid and with a fine man, but we gonna, we gonna move it on. Anyways, the salons. By the second half of the 2000s, salons would be facing even more competition and pressure than ever before. As early as 1999, the competition between black and Dominican salons in urban centers was reported with Dominican blowout services believed to be quicker, healthier on the hair, and cheaper. Reported the New York Times, a wash and set at a Dominican salon might cost as little as $10 or $15, while an African-American salon on average charges twice that or more. Next, the rise of African immigration in the 90s meant more braiders and people getting accustomed to super cheap braids done by multiple people. And two more things would impact the hairstylist client culture forever. Being able to learn how to do your own hair thanks to YouTube University and the natural hair movement. Joan Clayton, the fictional lawyer played by Tracy Ellis Ross on Girlfriends, rocked a large natural do that was almost as symbolically powerful as Erica Alexander's Maxine Shaw, a well-paid, fashionable, and groundbreaking dark-skinned and dreadlocked lawyer on Living Single. From the mid-90s onward, neo-soul and R&B stars from Jill Scott to Erica Badu to India Ari to Alicia Keys were reflecting and inspiring a growing natural hair movement that would only be strengthened by the internet. But what constituted natural depended on the person. For instance, Erica Badu was criticized in 2000 when her dreadlocks were revealed to be fake. This would continue and sharpen arguments by Rastafarians that Black Americans were appropriating dreadlocks and disconnected from a spiritual aspect of them. Badu, saying, this hair don't make me, shaved her head bald. Saying India Ari in her 2006 song, I Am Not My Hair, little girl with the press and curl, age Eight, I got a jerry curl. 13, and I got a relaxer. I was a source of so much laughter. At 15, when it all broke off, 18 and went all natural. By the early 2010s, there were thousands of black blogs discussing everything from the damage of relaxers to how to navigate life after the big chop. It's been speculated that the embrace of natural hair was aided by the 2009 recession. And it's estimated that between 2008 and 2010, hundreds of black hair salons across the country closed. But for those of us who grew up in less progressive eras, coming to terms with our natural hair was a slow process. In the 2000s, straight hair continued to rule as the supreme form of black beauty in Charlotte, North Carolina when I was coming of age. Nappy also continued to be a pejorative term. All of the salons I went to were black owned and all of the beauty supply stores I went to were Asian owned. My grandfather, a restaurateur and tire shop owner, had briefly tried opening his own beauty supply store but couldn't compete. Very few teen girls or adult women I knew wore afros, but straight hair, wigs, and braids were the common choice. Dreadlocks too. Meanwhile, 
I had received my first relaxer tragically when I was three years old. I had to wear swimming caps and told not to sweat out my roots so my hair wouldn't turn back. I remember the frustration of wrapping my doobied hair before bed and waking up with my scarf off the following morning. And when my kitchen or the new growth got unruly, a hot comb and later the goddess of straightening with less chance to burn me, the flat iron was taken to it. When I tell y'all I used to be so scared when my mama would come to me and be like it was time for the hot comb, I would not be looking forward to like peeling down my ears so that she could get the little corners. Oh my God. <laughs> Anybody else remember that? Who always had that little dark, dark brown, dark brown flop on my, uh, on my ear. Anybody else had that ear on, on church? YouTube University? <laughs> yeah, Jay. It made me think I could braid for a minute. It really did. I, I you know, for anybody just joining us, we're just going through different aspects of what makes women, men, black people, people feel good, you know, or have good sexual thoughts or think I have good self-esteem. Part of that is hair. Okay. So we're doing different sections of that. So I hope you like watching these as much as I do. Okay. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. All right. The intellectual media worst memories. When I was five, I begged my mom for Scary Spice Bantu knots and suffered through their installation and got teased at school the next day relentlessly. So I undid them before I got home and got in trouble. And when I was nine or 10, I washed my hair at a friend's sleepover thinking it would remain straight if I simply blow dried it and combed it. It did not. When I was 11, I was removing my cornrows while watching the queen of 2000's black teen hairstyles, Raven Simone, on That's So Raven, when I accidentally cut off most of my hair in the back. My Nana's hairstylist saved it by giving me the newly famous Rihanna bob, which several family members and teachers admonished as too grown for my sixth grade self. In 2007, CBS radio host John Imus called the nine black players of the Rutgers University women's basketball team nappy-headed hoes, which led to numerous advertisers jumping ship and him getting fired. Two years later, I remember watching Good Hair, the documentary by Chris Rock, and being slightly disturbed by the toxicity of creamy crack, but not enough to want to stop getting relaxers. The criticism the movie garnered by black intellectuals who rightly pointed out Rock's lack of contextual analysis was not on my radar at that age. When I rewatched while researching for this video, I'm amused at how much of this history was left out in exchange for scenes of a white man getting Botox, wild projections and judgments from Al Sharpton, and awkward overproduced skits featuring Rock. However, as a youth, the movie did factor into my decision to go natural year later. But at the time when good hair came out, it was easy to put on clip-in ponytails with my straight and straight hair. And nobody could call me nappy unless, of course, my curly edges weren't gelled down. I feel like everybody in the comments has these hair stories. Be sure to share them with me. You know, like my scalp would itch and burn when I'd have clip-ins, like the bobby pins and clips, because it would burrow into my flesh. And like, I used to live in constant fear that I would be the victim of the misogynistic yet common event of of a male student ripping someone's hairpiece off for amusement. I know that happened at everybody's school. It definitely happened at mine. I also remember how my clipped on bun flew off during a trip to the amusement park Carowinds, which 
is funny now, but back then it was devastatingly embarrassing. The same year the good hair dropped, Solange Knowles cut off her hair, leading to ableist gossip blogs, still shook over the Britney Spears head shaving incident to call her insane and crazy. And in 2012, I remember two-time Olympic gold medalist Gabby Douglas being criticized by some black Twitter users for not having pristine hair when performing a fucking gymnastics routine. So if I grew up with all of that, plus the years of my ancestors' hair traumas, it's no wonder it took me a while to get around to natural hair. By the time I was 17, I was also wearing quick weaves that my best friend installed by gluing tracks onto my head, my braided hair tucked under a wig cap, and I shudder knowing I went to college with an invisible part. Do y'all remember those? Oh my God, I had an invisible part. It was huge. You could walk across that shit. You could swim across that invisible part. It wasn't until 2013 that a good friend who went natural convinced me to give it a try. Shout out to Nadia. Of course, her suggestion was made more prudent by the fact that I permed my tresses for the first time in college and broke all my hair off. That would not be my last time damaging my hair, but doing the big chop would begin my love affair with my natural self. This same metamorphosis was happening on a larger scale in the personal lives of black women and in the depiction of them on screen. The 2014 drama How to Get Away with Murder caused water cooler fodder when the main character lawyer Annalise Keating, portrayed by Viola Davis, removed her wig. The next year, when Zendaya's red carpet dreadlocks prompted Juliana Rancic to speculate that she looked like she smelled like weed and patchouli, women rallied behind her online and dragged the E! News host. Back in 2011, Rihanna had responded to a Twitter user asking why her hair was nappy with the sizzling because I'm black, bitch. And we can't forget how many people went up for Blue Ivy when people were coming at Beyonce and Jay-Z over her hair in 2013. Ten years later, the stigma of natural hair seems to be at an all-time low. And during that period, a flourishing natural hair care industry emerged, similar to the one of the early 70s, with black-owned startups like Carol's Daughter becoming white-owned, and every company from Revlon to L'Oreal creating a natural hair care line to compete with smaller Black-owned businesses. Like in the case of Asian-American dominance of Black beauty supply stores, where they have supplier connections and better access to capital, corporations have the means to create dupes of Black-owned products, market them at a higher rate, and sell them for a cheaper price. To deal with the sheer volume of products available, a bustling natural hair care video industry guided the curious on YouTube, alongside videos that taught people how to braid hair, install convincing sew-ins, and a bunch of other hair feats that were once only achievable with years of training. And the best part was YouTube was free. And when black hair product companies that gained massive followings thanks to hair blogs and YouTubers became no longer black owned and marketed towards a more inclusive audience, hair formulas changed. Like in the case of Shea Moisture. And because numerous black owned hair companies have made it clear that they'll sell as soon as their company is eligible for a massive buyout so they can skip the stress of competing with major corporations, it's become the norm for most of us to go with the product specifically targeted at black hair that works for us and what is cost effective and available rather than what is targeted at black hair and black owned. During this multifaceted 2010s era, as natural hair became more lucrative, it was also much more embraced, more protected and discussed, and a lot less ridiculed, especially on the internet in spaces like the colloquially coined Team Natural and Shea Butter Twitter, where women who wore natural hair and or identified as feminists melted into a community whose existence was used as an insult hurled by misogynists and pick me's. Don't make Shea Butter Twitter mad, they guffaw with 
when someone made a rape joke or said something colorist. But natural hair, of course, was not just limited to the social justice warriors and the shea butter feminists, just as the Afro of the late 60s and 70s wasn't limited to revolutionaries. In 2018, it was reported that 71% of black adults wore their natural hair at least once in 2016, and black spending on relaxers dropped 30.8% between 2011 and 2016. Yay, you know why that's important? That's important because it's been proven now at this point that when you wear them perms and stuff, it causes cysts and fibroids. I remember when I was in college and, you know, I had a poor diet. I used to eat a lot of fast food too. But um, yeah, when I stopped doing perms, I didn't have any more cysts issues. I remember I had cysts, but, you know, it, it's not good, y'all. Now it's coming out all these years later, right? Ain't that something? Even still, there are those who believe only certain natural hair textures are professional or beautiful. Prioritizing 3A to 3C hair over 4A to 4C curls and kinks. Some people would spend hours on wash day doing particular treatments and manipulations to coax their hair texture to be more desirable. A trend which thankfully seems to be dying out in recent years. There are people who continue to hold the belief that natural hair is inferior. There's the camp who accuse black women of being self-hating for wearing hair hats, aka wigs. And me personally, I'm just glad the wig technology has come a long way and that there are so many any good synthetic ones because me personally i'm gonna wear a hair hat okay shout out to the hair hats but natural hair versus weaves isn't the only thing that sparks intense debate what color femmes choose to wear is also under scrutiny think of the angry purple haired feminist stereotype the rainbow colors as ghetto stereotype and the blonde as self-hating or not for dark skinned people lies for over a century these arguments about what black femmes do to their hair have raged on and in the past decade and as recently as last year private schools nonprofits, and companies have punished suspended or attempted to fire slash expel black people with braids, afros, dreadlocks, or colored hair. And thanks to black people still obsessed with respectability politics, like when in 2021, the comedian and actress Monique criticized black women who wear bonnets in public. Clearly, we have a long way to go when it comes to respecting black people, particularly black women's hair choices. <laughs> Just last fall, it was reported in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute that black women who use chemical hair straighteners and relaxers may have a higher risk of uterine cancer. In a study of black and white women, black women are three times more likely to develop uterine fibroids than white ones. And black women are roughly 60% of the hair relaxer market. Though thankfully, it's dwindling. Sales have dropped from 71 million in 2011 to 30 million in 2021. I'm glad that this knowledge about hair relaxers being harmful will help many of us make more fruitful choices in the future, but I can't help but weep for past generations of women and current people suffering from uterine cancer and fibroids because they used relaxers. I personally hope that the 15 years of relaxers I endured won't have long-term impacts on my health. But what about black women and femmes who still feel the need to straighten? Not just because of a personal styling choice or for convenience, but because it makes surviving in America easier. In 2016, 
2018 when looking for employment in New York with the purple afro, I got denied in several food and retail and kitchen positions. And when a friend hired me at a gym, she had me wear a straight wig at the interview and during orientation, knowing they wouldn't be able to fire me if I took the wig off after a week or two of employment. But knowing that they would have fired me or not even hired me if I had shown up with my hair in an afro still fills me with rage. You should have seen me walking around when I took that wig off that week after I was putting that thing in everybody's face. The widespread belief that natural hair is inferior, which impacts black people's employment opportunities and further intensifies racial profiling, has only recently begun being legislated. The 2019 California Crown Act was the first legislation passed at the state level banning discrimination of hairstyles and textures that are associated with a specific race or nationality. Crown stands for create a respectful and open workplace for natural hair. And similar laws passed shortly after in New York, New Jersey, Washington, Maryland, Virginia, and Colorado. A Crown Act was introduced in South Carolina, but failed to be ratified. And the Crown Act would be introduced at the national level in 2020 and 2021, but failed to be passed both times. However, while the 2021 attempt was ultimately blocked by the Senate Republicans, it was passed by the House, showing that this may eventually become national law. And it would be about damn time for our hair to be protected on a national level. As Black people's hairstyles and even our methods of hair care are, depending on where you stand, are being appropriated and or appreciated by other races. I really love discussing a black woman's history of hair with you guys. And believe me, this video could have been 10 times longer with a lot more topics, but you know, I had to end it eventually. I hope to explore more topics from our unique point of view while bringing up my own personal journeys and struggles growing up as a black girl. For all of my black women and femmes, what was your defining hair moment growing up? Who was your hairstyle hero? If That's a good question. What was your defining moment as little girl? I remember I got a jerry curl. I did not want a jerry curl. My mama made me get a jerry curl when I was turning into sixth grade and I ended up keeping that thing to like ninth grade. And I was like, please, mom, I do not want. I can't go. Do jerry curl. Please don't give me a jerry curl. So jerry curl, that was my defining moment. Now, this is another one. This is the same, same sister, same company. I really enjoy her videos because they're already pretty stacked for me. What do I got to research? <laughs> well, no, I do. I co-sign a lot of what she's saying. I've studied a lot of the same things. That's what made me like, why am I going to re-up at the wheel? This sister already hooked this up. Now, check this out. Now, this one is called Black Femicide and Intimate Partner Violence, a History. This goes in with the sexual exploitation still. You see how all segments connect? Check. was in the 10th grade when a middle school friend's mother and brother were murdered by her mom's ex-boyfriend. The 15-year-old was even shot while escaping through a window while carrying her infant sister to safety because the gunman intended to kill them all that night. When police arrived on the scene, the murderer, Scott Davis, screamed, I shot them, I did it, and I'll do it again. Only when he faced death penalty charges did he apologize while accepting a plea deal. My friend, a bubbly and vivacious girl with her whole life in front of her, then had to face that life without her family. At 18, when speaking at the life sentencing of her mother's murderer, she said, I don't understand how someone could destroy somebody's life like this. It's something that will haunt me for the rest of my life. Her mother had attempted to get the boyfriend drug treatment and domestic violence counseling to no avail. When she asked him to move out, he agreed. 
But instead of leaving, he made a deadly decision. Years later, when an ex-boyfriend woke me from my sleep with his hands around my neck, attempting to crush my windpipe in a rage, I thought of my friend and her mother. Before diving into this video, I wanna make something clear before anyone attempts to lead a deflective argument in the comments. Intimate partner violence is not limited to any race, country, gender, or sexual orientation. It has been a long running feature of patriarchal society and numerous civilizations and cultures, not just during the 244 years of official American existence. At least four million American- Hold up. Uh... Listen, can you guys make sure to click like, click like, click like, click like. I guess I only have one person watching right now, but I hope you're enjoying it. Click like. It's very interesting to me. I hope it's interesting to you. Ooh, ooh. hope it's interesting to you. I think every five hours a black woman. Mm-hmm. Yep. Let's check this out. It's crazy women a year of all races are abused by their partners and this includes homosexual relationships in fact women in these relationships grapple with their own unique experiences of psychological aggression gender role posturing and mutual violence that must be addressed on a wide scale by someone in that community Additionally, it was reported that one in five men experienced intimate partner violence in America in 2016. And a global look at intimate partner violence shows that the problem is widespread and not based in America. In South Korea, where gender inequality didn't begin being addressed until the late 80s, and the legal status of patrilineal secession was not struck down until 2005, domestic violence is rampant. One out of six couples has experienced more than one episode of physical abuse, which is culturally seen as a private matter that most do not want police intervention on. In fact, the country is seeing a rise in anti-feminism and misogynistic incel culture. If you want content discussing the intimate partner abuse of anybody but black American women, there is information out there to explore. And they are important because as we will learn, intimate partner violence is different among groups. Those issues are valid, but but they are not the subject at hand. This video is dedicated to my friend and her mother, the black women I've known growing up who were beaten or nearly killed, impregnated without their consent, the black women who dared to fight back and were in prison, and the black women dragged and maligned today by their own community for daring to speak up. This video is about black women, intimate partner violence and heterosexual relationships, and the celebrity culture that simultaneously encourages and ignores it. Caught on camera assaulting women as a scope of intimate partner violence to include reported rapes and physical abuse by a woman's partner, at least 40% of black women have had these experiences, making them the group most likely to be abused by a partner. But now it's time for an in-depth updated version inspired by the disgusting yet unsurprising support of Tory Lanez, the man who shot Meg Thee Stallion, by the baby, a man from my hometown, rumored to be physically abusive as well as being caught on camera assaulting women, as well as allegedly smirking at the family of the man he killed in court. In this episode of Celebrity, we'll be discussing how and why straight black women are so often conditioned to ride or die, and why hip hop and the culture must be at the forefront of obliterating systemic abuse. But before we talk about misogynistic celebrities, we need to take it back a few centuries. Why? Because the hatred of black women does not start or end with insecure rappers, actors, and athletes.
Who is in this? Who is that? Who's she talking about? What? Anybody still out here? Hey, Mr. Rod, thank you for still. A popular 1962 Motown song, He Hit Me and It Felt Like a Kiss, exemplifies the long-reaching pervasiveness of domestic violence in black culture. The song was written by Carole King and Jerry Goffin after finding out their babysitter was routinely beaten by her boyfriend and that the woman, singer Little Eva, justified the violence as his love for her. Little Eva sang this song you've probably heard of, Locomotion. Then there was David Ruffin, lead singer of The Temptations, who abused singer Tammy Terrell and even hit her with a motorcycle helmet. Perhaps most notoriously, there was Ike and Tina Turner, whose tumultuous relationship has been parodied and joked about in numerous songs and TV shows. Ike said in 1999, Sure, I slapped Tina. We had fights, and there have been times when I punched her to the ground without thinking. But I never beat her. But of course, the violence, and our tolerance of it, reaches back further than that. Nothing set the tone for the treatment of black women in this country quite like the treatment of black women during slavery. They were raped and beaten by masters while prized and praised for their abilities to cook, clean, work, and push out children. It was common for black men, also beaten and dehumanized while being barred from traditional notions of masculinity, land ownership, legal marriage, freedom, etc., to take on the values of their oppressors and attempt to exhibit control over what they could in their lives. Like black women. While there was a core of black men committed to the love and safety of their counterparts, the portion that coveted white women while disparaging black women didn't go away after slavery. The late 19th century is lightly peppered with court cases or instances of rape or attempted rape of black women by black men, usually dismissed or with no resulting punishment for the accused. States had rewritten their rape laws after the Civil War to be race neutral, but this wasn't beneficial to black women. As detailed by Diane Miller Somerville in Rape and Race, in the 19th century South, white men on juries and as judges sympathized with black men accused of rape of black women because they were being unfairly held accountable under alien rules of sexual and moral conduct. This worked doubly. Black men were stereotyped as too beastly to adhere to sexual morality, and black women were stereotyped as too lascivious to be victims. The officiated experiences of 19th century black women who went to court against their rapists were the exceptions, not the rule. Historically, black women were expected to be strong and resilient in their communities, to put race first, and to protect black men, as they were already stereotyped to be violent. Instead of getting police involved or running away with money they didn't have, black women often faced abusers themselves, explaining why black women murdered male partners in the first half of the century at comparable rates to black men murdering their partners. Think of all those hot grits and middle of the night knife at the throat stories about battered women who finally had enough. Bring them into the kitchen and get you a big old pot of hot grits. <laughs> and when it start to boil like lava after he done got good and comfortable, you say, good morning, throw it right on him. As one black woman noted in 1904, on one hand, we are assailed by white men, and on the other hand, we are assailed by black men, who should be our natural protectors. A study of murder data from Italian, German, and black Chicagoans between 1875 and 1920 demonstrates this historical reality. During this period, the proportion of domestic homicides among all groups doubled. 
The family was changing. More white women entered the workforce and new trends and ideas about dating, marriage, and gender roles in the rapidly urbanizing country caused tension. Basically, more men were employing domestic abuse as a strategy of patriarchal power. But this abuse varied among racial groups. Among German Chicagoans who had been in the area for a long period of time and had established roots and wealth, most of the domestic homicide involved men in their 30s murdering their entire families and themselves, usually a reaction to a falling social or economic status or women's threats to leave or divorce them. This group was the most likely to kill their own children. Italian Chicagoans, who were poor, younger, and more recently settled than Germans, had a homicide rate four times the level of Chicago overall, and 10 times the German homicide rate. But Italians were the least likely group to kill women, instead disproportionately murdering brothers, fathers, brothers-in-law, and fathers-in-law. Among Italians, the important concept of family honor, along with expectations of manliness and silence, or omerta, to protect women converged. While financial issues contributed, many murders were the result of a woman's male relative ending the life of someone who had beaten her, cheated on her, or otherwise affronted her and therefore the family. Last but not least, black Chicagoans. They were the poorest and most recently settled, and their homicide rate was five times larger than the city of Chicago overall, the only group higher than the Italians. While they were critiqued in newspapers, for street violence and brawls, most black-on-black -black violence actually occurred within the home. Black people had the highest family homicide rate, double the rate of Italians, and six times the rate of Chicago overall. Black people were the least likely to kill their own children, with instead spouses and lovers making up more than four-fifths of the family homicide victims. Black men, especially those who had witnessed violence growing up, often took their daily frustrations out on their women, sometimes culminating in death. Among all groups, for most of the cases in which a woman killed a man, it was after unsuccessful attempts to secure legal protection. Described one Bell Benson in 1918, don't look for Jim, I just killed him because he started to beat me again and I shot him. Another woman, 23-year-old Minnie Smith, went on record after killing her husband of two years that she originally filed a complaint with police about his abuse and had him arrested. The court dismissed the case, leading to Minnie finding him when he was released and shooting him three times. She explained, he had always said if I ever had him arrested, he would kill me and I know he would do it. So I shot him and then I shot him some more. This pattern of abuse followed by a self-defense killing continued well into the 20th century, but began to taper off in the 80s. In 1980, 13% of black male murder victims were killed by a partner and has since dropped to 5%. But the treatment of modern black women who decide to take on their abusers is something we'll return to later. Hi, everyone. Mark Barden here at Sandy Hook Promise. Oh, my goodness. Well, how are you enjoying the content? Click like if you like it. Click like if you're here. Give me a shout out. I think it's pretty interesting stuff. Anyway, we're going to keep it pushing. We're gonna play this. This is gonna be about violence against black yeah, women. Doesn't pretty sleepy. Black women in abusive relationships are more likely to remain in abusive relationships longer than white women. Why? The awful statistics about violence against black women doesn't prove that black men, who black women are most likely to date, are more violent than white ones, but instead speak to the unique race 
class and gender-based disadvantages black women face, especially their lack of economic resources. This problem is multi-layered and anyone ignoring these layers will hinder the fight to end domestic violence more than help it. Anyone claiming it's purely a leftover of slavery is as lost as anyone claiming that black men are simply more violent than white men. The first layer is structural. Black people have been exposed to racial and gender oppression on an intergenerational level. And as mentioned before, these are things that have existed before violent hip hoppers and modern black people. Women have traditionally been mistreated and subjugated throughout world history, making it one of the biggest structural barriers to ending intimate partner violence because it taints literally everything. Because women have often been seen as property or the status symbol of a man, it's not surprising that these ideas apply more more loosely in modern dating. Think, if I can't have her, nobody will. On the racial front, there have been educational, employment, and economic inequalities at a systemic level that also taints everything, like having enough money to leave an abuser, having access to quality homeless shelters and jobs, to brazen corruption in law enforcement. Speaking of law enforcement, from a historical perspective, most black women have been reluctant to call the police on abusers, as police are corrupt, violent, and often ineffective in deterring intimate partner violence, with many being abusers in their own families as well. Data suggests that cops commit acts of domestic violence against spouses and children at up to 15 times that of the general population. The criminal justice system, tainted by racism and misogyny, makes speaking up against an abuser a dangerous gamble. In the case of Minnie Smith, even when she got her abuser arrested, he was not kept from harming her and was even let out. This still happens. And what about violence, a structural issue throughout humanity's existence? From public beatings of enslaved people at the whipping post to church-sanctioned child beatings, the structural violence of those who are molded to be subservient has been a recurring theme in our community. Black boys and girls often face unfathomable levels of physical and sexual violence and often don't have anyone to turn to for healing. For boys, the inequalities and violence converge with expectations of manhood in a patriarchal society, another structural issue. To often make men with a lack of resources and a lack of success in a white man's world more susceptible to the generic stereotypes black men are socialized to embrace. And this is where we enter the cultural layer. Numerous scholars have discussed the commonality of poor, neglected, and or dehumanized black boys falling into a certain persona for self-esteem and protection. This persona involves toughness, not showing emotions, wielding an exploitative attitude towards women, and or resorting to violence to settle disputes. Per a University of Maryland paper on black intimate partner violence, as a result of their idleness and frustration, these men are often prone to seek status and to organize their lives around involvement in chronic drinking, drug use, drug selling, other illegal activities, chasing women, and partying. These are coincidentally the primary themes of modern hip hop. Let's not play coy here. Structural issues like patriarchy, poverty, and racism exacerbate the gangster and pimp personas, but these personas are also baked into black culture at this point. You tell her what you want her to do. If she say no, hit the bitch, simple. But I, 
I couldn't hit Sarah. I couldn't hit any woman. Has not hitting the bitch been working? I mean, scientifically speaking, has not hitting the bitch achieved the desired result? From blues lyrics to modern hip-hop, domestic violence has been satirized, downplayed, joked about, or ignored. The dehumanization of black men in media as violent creatures incapable of reason, thought, or self-control with insatiable sexual lust has endured since slavery. The dehumanization of black women in media as creatures who are either good, obedient mommy figures or whores undeserving of respect has been recurring from the days of Jim Crow to modern piss-poor observations made by everyone from rappers to teenage TikTokers to struggling podcasters looking for a viral moment. Today the question is, which do y'all prefer, black or white females? Oh, bro. Um, I got to rock with them Caucasians, so I don't know why. They get it done for me. For sure, for sure. Both y'all? Yeah. In and outside of the black community, black women are stereotyped as angry and or lascivious, making them less credible victims in the eyes of law enforcement. And for those who don't know what lascivious means, lascivious means to lust, to lust, lascivious, to mean lustful. And others, the structural stigma against single unmarried women and the cultural stigma against hoes, body counts, and soul ties can make the thought of being alone especially troubling for black women raised to measure their value by their relationship to men. Have you been picked? Do you have a man? Can I go about getting his attention without seeming crazy and desperate? You have plans with your boyfriend? I don't have a boyfriend. Okay, so when you get one, no, but when you get one, so with dating as hard as it is out here, dealing with unsavory behavior for relationship status or marital security is a tale as old as time. Additionally, there's a cultural expectation for black women to stand 10 toes down for her community and not send another black man to jail. A black woman who decides enough can run the risk of being accused of betraying her partner and her race. The structural issue of mass incarceration therefore makes the issue of race loyalty culturally relevant. This is especially true in the hood where police brutality, mass incarceration, and domestic violence are most prevalent. Intimate partner violence happens to black people of all class statuses, but it's a unique situation for the impoverished. The hood, a result of racist redlining, has no snitching attitudes bolstered by hip hop culture that makes victims of domestic violence socially isolated, along with having less access to domestic violence resources. Another cultural component is the higher tendency of egalitarian relationships in the black community, again, a result of structural racism and sexism. Black women have usually worked outside the home, and black men historically have been lynched, kidnapped for chain gangs, required to migrate for seasonal jobs, and arrested for petty or survival crimes that have led to mass incarceration, meaning black women have usually been more independent in heads of households than white women. Sometimes black men, harder pressed to find employment than their white and female counterparts, have had to rely on their woman's money, which some scholars refer to as a sense of subordinated masculinity. A black independent woman is at odds with the gender expectations many black men have for themselves in a white male patriarchal dominated society, explaining why some, particularly those who have witnessed intimate partner violence themselves as children, are violent towards the women they date. Another 
class-based reality for black women in domestic violence situations, the possibility of calling the police on an abuser, violating a nuisance law, and getting kicked out by landlords. These laws exist in various towns, especially in areas where there's a lot of low-income housing. When you add in the other economic disadvantages, like the overall white-black wealth gap, the fact that black women are two times more likely to be poor than white women, and severe lack of community resources in the impoverished areas so frequently inhabited by black women, these factors lead to a lack of income and opportunities that makes it harder for black women to escape abusive situations, especially when they are poor or have kids. Speaking of kids, reproductive coercion is a major concern for abused women of all races. This is when a partner manipulates the relationship by pressuring pregnancy or sabotaging birth control. One study found that 66% of teen mothers on public assistance who went through intimate partner violence had their birth control sabotaged. All of this leads to women being more dependent on fathers and informal faith-based support. Speaking of faith-based support, yet another cultural component is the Black church, which has directly and indirectly sanctioned the subservience of Black women in multiple ways. Old heads and fundamentalists point to Ephesians 5.22 to 5.28 and other interpretations of the Bible that make women subservient. Also, the church's long history has been traditionally dominated by men, meaning women's issues and concerns were often deprioritized. That's tragic because black women are the most religious group in the country. In years of internalized sermons and advice that a good woman uplifts her man, the one bestowed upon her by God, and sticks by him is all too common. Out of all abused women, black women are the most likely to turn to their faith, religion, and faith community for support. Hopefully, the continued rise and fight for black women in leadership roles in the black church will change some things. The last layer is situational. The who's, what's, where's, when's, and why's of domestic violence incidents that make each case different. Alcohol and drugs are often a part of these incidents, or somebody accused of cheating, or somebody actually cheating. Time and place also plays a role with women most likely to be attacked between 6 p.m. and midnight and three out of four at or near their own homes. I can already hear the fingers going at the keyboards right now, but none of the things I've mentioned are a call to coddle abuse of black men or demonize the good ones. Can we rewind that and say it again? None of the things I've mentioned are a call to coddle abuse of black men or demonize the good ones. Intimate partner violence can be broadly categorized with most data showing that economically disenfranchised black men are the most likely to hurt black women, showing the need for poverty, racism, and misogyny to be eradicated. These structural, cultural, and situational layers often and go ignored or pushed to the wayside in divisive arguments that ultimately help nobody. It's part of the reason why black women committed to divesting think violence against black women would disappear if they simply date white men. I don't need to list out the number of white terrorists, serial killers, and family annihilators to make my point that divester women have been structurally indoctrinated into believing white men are superior to and less violent than black men because it should be obvious. But that's not my only complaint. I've got smoke for everyone. Pro-black men invested in positive representations of the black community would rather sweep the brutal treatment of black women under the rug. Because instead of demanding individual accountability, they would rather use the structural and cultural issues as a crutch. And sometimes when these structural, cultural, and situational layers are addressed, 
They seem to obscure the personal trauma in situations of black women as blips on the screen in a systemic issue, not holding them up as individual experiences. Take prison abolitionists who don't believe in incarcerating or executing abusers and murderers of women. They acknowledge the changes that need to happen to make the system more equitable and intimate partner violence obsolete. But sometimes their casual write-offs as women who challenge abolitionist ideology as carceral feminists who simply don't understand or who are committed to harm rather than being committed to their own fucking survival is tone deaf. This is something I've experienced and partly why I don't consider myself a prison abolitionist. They are not reaching and perhaps will never reach mainstream support because of a reluctance to validate the concerns of black women who challenge prison abolition as much as black women who champion it. Aaron Glee Jr. was arrested in May 2020 for flying into a rage and kicking a woman in the stomach when she refused his sexual advances. He bonded out of jail on June 1st, just five days before he kidnapped and raped a homeless Alawatoyan Salau for days before murdering her in August 2020. He had a history of assaulting women for three decades. Also that month, the Massachusetts Bail Fund posted $15,000 to bail out a twice convicted rapist named Sean McClinton. Three weeks after walking free, he allegedly kidnapped, beat, and raped the woman. He in no way represents the masses of people in prison for nonviolent and or survival crimes who don't have enough money for bail, but he is a lightning rod for ongoing arguments about how to deal with the violent and sexually depraved. Let me be clear, prisons should not dehumanize people and exacerbate violence. Decarceration or reducing the amount of people sent to prisons, especially for crimes that should not actually be crimes, is crucial. But convicted sexual offenders should not be in the general public. And this falls on our legal system as well as the public. When abolition by any means necessary means that bail funds should be used on men jailed for stalking, abuse, rape, or murder, or that restorative justice is the solution for, say, a man who murdered his ex and set his children on fire. It's not rocket science to see why intimate partner violence, law enforcement reform, and discourse about abolition will continue to divide Black Americans in the years to come. Be creatives are not your typical video editors. We know what works best in videos, but we also do what works best for your brand. And we're hey, all right. Who's still here with me? Who's here with me? Who's here? Who, who's here with me? Who's still peeping with me here? Shout out, check punch. What a punch one, punch ones. If you're still with me out here, checking out some of this history, make sure you support Lexa, Lexa, uh, <laughs> intellectual um, media because, yeah, thank you guys. I appreciate that. It's very interesting information. A lot of history. I think she's, you know, very, you know, cool voice, good video, good visuals. And it's telling everything I was going to say, but they chopped it up. So check this out. Keep going. Of death among black girls aged one through 19 after unintentional injuries is homicide, with 15.5% of deaths being a murder. For black women ages 20 through 44, homicide is the fourth leading cause comprising. All right. Make sure you guys click like, please, guys. It helps with the algorithms. It'd be beautiful to share this. I know this is long, but I think you really will benefit from watching this podcast. 
historically, just learning some more history about black women. 7% of deaths. To put domestic homicide of black women further into perspective, think of it like this. Police killed 1,165 people in 2018. 26.7% or 215 of those people were black. That's fucking despicable and rightfully a key concern of the black community. Now, in 2016, 517 black women were murdered by a man with 91% or 470 murdered by someone they knew. Of those women, 272 were murdered by a husband, boyfriend, or ex. In the wake of a global pandemic that is keeping abused women trapped at home with economically downtrodden partners, future statistics from this era will be just as heartbreaking. These problems demand equal attention. Neither can be swept under the rug by white racists who claim America is a free and just place for all, or by black nationalists who demand women to put race over gender first. The average black female homicide victim is 34 years old, but intimate violence against black girls begins much earlier. A great source for nuanced information on intimate partner violence among teens is Jody Miller's Getting Played. It's quite common for black teen girls to experience hair pulling, slapping, grabbing, public acts of embarrassment, like being thrown into pools or having hair snatched off, along with other more violent forms of harassment and sexual assault, like groping. Think of all the viral videos you've seen of black girls being humiliated or assaulted by their peers for laughs. So what has been done to combat intimate partner violence? And has any of it been helpful? In 1994, Congress passed the Violence Against Women Act as part of the infamous Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act. It established a federal office on violence against women in the Department of Justice, created the National Domestic Violence Hotline, and increased money for shelters and services designed to protect battered women. This was after a couple of decades of organizing, but it wasn't a true solution. The battered women's movement rose to prominence in the 70s after years of federal and local negligence that allowed the abuse of women who were often punished for defending themselves. The battered women's movement, often led by white feminists, perpetuated the belief that all domestic violence victims experienced it the same way, ignoring race, class, and gender differences. Secondly, this movement believed that domestic violence needed to be brought out of the private space of the home where it had grown unchecked for centuries into the public space of state jurisdiction and law enforcement. In doing so, it failed to account for the fact that the state is a perpetuator of violence in many women's lives, like the state-sanctioned sterilization and police brutality historically inflicted on black women. As the battered women's movement professionalized and became more mainstream with support from federal dollars, the pressure to separate ideal female victims from undeserving problematic and untrustworthy women grew. There also needed to be a financial incentive. The key to getting funding to fight domestic violence in the 80s with the conservative family values obsessed anti-divorce Reagan administration was by emphasizing the criminalization of domestic violence. More money was spent on research and policy efforts that treated domestic violence as a crime, not as a component of the structural issues we discussed earlier. Whether you believe domestic violence should be rewarded with punishment or resources and understanding, you can agree that the racist, sexist, and greedy government absolving itself of its role in perpetuating the inequalities and circumstances that make domestic violence widespread 
is preposterous. Additionally, the emphasis on criminalizing domestic violence marginalizes battered women who themselves participate in illegal activity. You know, undocumented women, drug users or sellers, sex workers, and those fighting back against their abusers, things that shouldn't be crimes. So the fact that the Violence Against Women Act was embedded into legislation that did nothing to address the systemic poverty and racism that exacerbates domestic violence and other survival crimes is just the sick fucking world we live in. So in addition to the criminalization of domestic violence in the 90s, domestic violence was increasingly linked to welfare, something conservatives already wanted to dismantle. This is important because it instead should have been linked to poverty, something that conservatives and liberals alike had no desire to dismantle. But nope, moving women from welfare to work became the priority, especially with the addition of the family violence option to the disastrous personal responsibility and work opportunity reconciliation Act, which amended New Deal welfare legislation to be less functional and more discriminatory in the allocation of funds, something I discuss in this video. The family violence option was an amendment that would put victims into a special category, making aid somewhat more accessible. Victims advocates argued that women wanted to survive and work, and that welfare was a special last resort that needed to always be available. After a near-unanimous vote in Congress, the amendment was added as a state option, but not federal law. By 2004, 41 states and D.C. had adopted the family violence option. The rub is that abused women seeking aid under this option aren't always seen as deserving or even as victims. There's been racial discrimination in the granting of FBO waivers, with information about the FBO more likely to be withheld from black women. Because the option is state adopted, the flexible interpretation of the law means localities with higher concentrations of women of color have higher higher evidentiary standards for abuse. And again, those structural and cultural layers rear their ugly heads, regulating unrespectable, loud, proud, or otherwise unworthy poor black women to standards based on budgets, and bias. By the early 2000s, there was a rise in literature and scholars demanding an intersectional analysis of domestic violence to challenge previous assumptions. Amid findings that abuse in black communities is most common among young and unemployed urban residents, poverty became a central issue. Other research has dealt into victims themselves, revealing, for instance, that black and white girls who are sexually abused or molested are at a higher vulnerability to being in a violent, intimate partner relationship as adults. And more frequently, research has asserted that domestic violence against children, aka child beatings and whoopings, is linked to intimate partner violence in adulthood. Another interesting facet of intimate partner homicides is the prevalence of handguns, a fixture of American culture. Most black female victims are killed with handguns, and one study found that victims of all races are five times more likely to be killed by an armed abuser than an unarmed one. It's no surprise that in 2019, when Congress tried to add an amendment to the Violence Against Women Act, barring domestic abusers from owning guns, the NRA lobbied against it. Under the law at the time, those convicted of domestic abuse can lose their guns if they are or were formerly married to their victim, live with their victim, have a child with their victim, or are a parent or guardian of their victim. But the new provision would extend those who can be convicted of domestic abuse to include stalkers and current or former boyfriends or dating partners. And this passed in spring of 2021. The addition of stalkers to the legislation shows the changing attitudes towards how femicide happens. Think about how restraining orders taken out by women of all races routinely go 
go unenforced by police or ignored by violent abusers hell-bent on causing harm. While this is a national problem, it also varies across regions with local customs and attitudes like the black cultural issues discussed earlier serving as barriers. For example, in 2017, Mississippi State Representative Andy Gibson blocked legislation that would establish domestic violence as grounds for a divorce, saying, we need to have policies that strengthen the marriage. If a person is abusive, they need to have a change in behavior and a change of heart. People were outraged, so he backtracked and pushed a bill that would give women the ability to cite domestic violence as a reason to end a marriage, but did not establish domestic violence as a grounds for divorce. Ultimately, Mississippi passed a version of the law that allowed domestic abuse to be a grounds for divorce, and just one year later, over 600 divorces were filed on that basis. The fact that this wasn't possible until 2017 is insane, especially considering with the facts that poverty is high in Mississippi and that there is one abortion clinic showing the difficulties abused black women face in that state. But what happens when a woman is in imminent danger or a divorce does not bring safety? There's the infamous case of Centoya Brown, a woman who was sentenced to 51 years in prison after shooting the man who kidnapped her at 16. But there are even more stories that get less attention. Sometimes black women don't even have to actually kill their partners to be jailed, like in the case of Marissa Alexander. In 2010, just nine days after giving birth, her abusive husband attacked her. She fired a warning shot with a gun she was registered to own and ended up being found guilty of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon in Florida, a state known for its notorious stand your ground self-defense law. Her husband even testified in court that he had been abusive towards her and most of the women in his life to no avail. Marissa was sentenced to 20 years because the judge and jury said she didn't appear afraid for her life. The sentence was later overturned after five years of incarceration and house arrest, demonstrating that stereotypes about black women continue to haunt us today. So at federal and state levels, black victims of intimate partner violence are often failed. And what of the culture? Early reactions to mainstream attempts to discuss violence in the black community are the kinds of attitudes I'm familiar with as a child of the 90s. Alice Walker's The Color Purple and the eventual movie debuted in the 80s to hella controversy, even more than what was given to 1977's For Colored Girls. What I'm gonna do about Sophia? Your voice, your message, your story is needed now. Give your story a voice in a bank account. There is a need for more women. Oh, Ebony Magazine published a skeptical piece on the film and book, hinting that it may be a bad look for the community. Ironically enough, in the same issue with the not yet exposed rapist Bill Cosby on the cover. According to author Jacqueline Bobo, who interviewed various black women in the late 80s about their thoughts on the film, some found it to be unrealistic, saying the depictions of intimate partner violence were too soft. One said, they'll beat you up, black both your eyes, and then go get right in the bed and go to sleep. Another one chimed in about the backlash to the film, where was all this hue and cry when the black exploitation films came out? These attitudes were reflected in letters to Ebony about their coverage of the film, though not all saw the merit of it. That movie was, I mean, black, I mean, the color purple. I mean, tell me what y'all think about the color purple in chat, but um, I guess... Uh, I guess I'm saying, I remember watching The Color Purple. I must have seen that. I swear to you guys, I have had, I've seen The Color Purple probably uh, 150 times. 
you told her for the beat. I mean, I'm telling you, that's like a legend. But it got treated badly in the press. Let's see why. She's gonna go into that. Let's let's check this out. Anybody still here with me? If you still in here, hey everybody, click like. Please don't forget to click forget to click like. Man, I love a cash app. That'd be fantastic for this entertaining evening. My uh cash app, if you're you know willing to, is dollar sign to Miko Hawkins. I'm not gonna be monetized for this because clearly this is the sister doing all this good hard work for me. But um, I still, you know, I'm putting it together for us. So if you'd like to be a generous person, that'd be super dope. But anyway, let's get back to the show. Wrote one man to Ebony after viewing the movie. I am less saddened by the film The Color Purple than I am by the distorted perceptions that so many will walk away with after the credits roll. As an African-American male, I know that I am not the insatiable, vapid, and senselessly cruel creature whose every move is predicated upon fulfilling chronic sexual desires. But white viewers make no such distinction. This sentiment was echoed by others who felt that the piece of historical fiction put all black men into a bad light by painting them all as abusive. Writer and TV host Tony Brown wrote that the film was the most racist depiction of black men since the birth of the nation and the most anti-black family film of the modern film era. Did he have a point in targeting the film? Was Alice Walker's imagining of a not-so-distant past where black women faced abuse at the hands of black men a complete fantasy? And at the very least, if it was wasn't a fantasy, was it a relevant reality to the black community in the 80s and beyond? Well, seeing how most acts of domestic violence go unreported, we have to look at the rates of the intimate violence cases that are so extreme that they are officially documented. I'm of course talking about domestic homicide. Between 1980 and 1995, the number of domestic homicides that were black female victims dropped from 43% to 33% decrease or increase, the numbers reveal black women, especially lower income ones, face danger at home. The proof that we didn't address it properly? By 2008, that percentage was again up to 43%. And by 2019, that number was the ugly aforementioned 53%. community without accusations of trying to bring down black men or legitimize voyeuristic white fears. As the celebrity series continues to demonstrate, celebrities are only growing in importance. They shape society and they reflect society. When rap lyrics or comedians joke about killing lovers or wives in the face of the long history and daunting statistics, what is the end game. When rappers, athletes, and entertainers are allowed to succeed despite clear evidence of domestic abuse, instead of bringing up violent white entertainers or dragging critics as enemies of the black community, why can't we talk about it? Amid the rise of black women and children caught in gun crossfire, like in places like Philadelphia, at what point do we question violence of all kinds? When baby brought out Tory Lanez, the man who shot Megan Thee Stallion at Rolling Loud, the same festival that allowed alleged abuser Lil Uzi Vert, alleged sex trafficker Blueface, and convicted rapist and woman beater Kodak Black to perform, I'm sure he never thought in a million years that he would be canceled and kicked off the roster of several festivals. Not because he brought out the man who shot his estranged collaborator moments after she performed, throwing a restraining order into possible violation and serving as a metaphorical slap in the face, 
but instead because he made homophobic remarks and doubled down on them. While I'm glad that DaBaby is facing consequences for his maliciousness, the incident showed that violence against women, particularly black ones, is not enough to render a celebrity undesirable. In the mainstream, black celebrities are canceled sooner for anti-Semitism and homophobia or transphobia against white people than for violence against women. In the culture, black celebrities are canceled sooner for snitching or allegedly showing feet in racial chat rooms than for cold-blooded murder or violence against women. Clearly, this is as much an American problem as it is a black community problem. In recent years, intimate partner violence has become more taboo, but we still have a long way to go. A community that treats the art of an abuser as more important than the abused is doomed. Fantastic. Make sure that you support this sister. And then I'm not even done yet. This is like a, a, what's it called? A something-a-thon, you know what I'm saying? I'm using her resource because I do have other sources too, but I just like hers. <laughs> so there was one specific one that dealt with um, hip hop music videos. And then I'm a, I'm a um, she has so many flavors. I love them. so many she really did her job racism and homophobia all of that stuff is connected the hair hygiene sex history sterilization that one is the coldest one i can keep going but i'm gonna i'm gonna conclude it on this one for tonight confessions of the buzz around 2005 this is very cool now a lot of you probably already know i used to do music videos i was not a video fixin but I was in music videos, you know, I was an extra. I was one of the lowly extras. One time I did get to do, I mean, what about hip hop? That portrays people the worst like from the color purple. Yes, we're about to get into that. All right. So, yeah, I love the color purple. I ain't going to never stop watching the color purple. I haven't seen the color purple in a very long time because I done burnt it out, child. I done burnt it out. But anyway, this one is very poignant and gets to kind of the point that I hope you all can see in the manner in which I've shown these videos where things came from, why things are the way in general, in a general sense of the word. And I hope it's been entertaining for you. Please don't forget to click like. Click like, it makes a difference so people can find me. And also, um, if you like to donate, like I said, I never get no donations, that's crazy. I, I be seeing, you know, when I go to like Sean Davey Way or all these other people, they be straight getting like, kicked in type this is crazy but anyway i'm not in it for the dough i just know they're not going to monetize this because i'm showing so much of other things and it'd be nice anyway let's check this out this is beautiful right here click like click like please Ives' best-selling memoir, Confessions of a Video Vixen, began long before the book even dropped, with reviewers promising that the juicy details would titillate and provoke the hip-hop world. It was no wonder the book sold over 100,000 copies in the first month of publication alone. Very quickly, responses to the book were divided among polarized camps. At the center of the controversy was author Corinne Steffens, who notoriously named many of her famous sexual conquests in the book and criticism laced with heavy doses of misogyny labeled her a snitch. Hatred came from all sides, with Stephens being dragged on Tyra. Corinne Stephens, thank you for being here. 
And thank you for being honest. Wait a minute. I had to stop for a minute. I did get a cash app. Oh, thank you so much. Nancy Johnson, thank you so much. She sent me 20 bucks. That's dope. Blessings. Thank you, Nancy Johnson. That was super dope. Okay, let's let's get back into this. That's really dope. You're dying inside, aren't you? Mm -hmm. I, I haven't been the hardest on you. I've seen your interviews, and there have been people that are super duper duper hard on you. Maybe this was actually. Wait a minute. I got another Rasan Kemp. Thank you, Rasan Kemp, for five dollars for midnight snacks. That's really dope. Don't get me crying up in here. That's really dope. Thank you, family. I really give thanks. Let's keep going. This is beautiful. Thank you, guys. You're walking apart. Maybe I just wasn't in the mood for it today. And even parodied on the boondocks. We are back with our guest, Jessica Ethelberg, also known as Wonder Cheeks, reading excerpts from her amazing new best-selling book, The Private Lives of Superstar Rappers. Of all the rappers I met during those years, I've loved Gangstalicious the most. While in a mainstream sense, and especially in most circles of the black community, Corinne was labeled a snitch and agitator. The book also began to generate a conversation about misogyny and hip hop and the black community. For sex negative feminists and those invested in respectability, the book confirmed the worst beliefs about the black cultural phenomenon of hip hop video vixens, the predecessor of influencers and Instagram micro celebs. You see a beautiful girl in the Sum 41 video, she's not a video girl. You see a beautiful girl in Justin Timberlake's video, she happens to be a model, but you see a black girl in an LL Cool J video, they want to label her as a video girl. 16 years after Corinne's earth-shattering book, have her most important revelations been addressed on a wide scale in hip-hop and the black community? And was the book itself a cautionary tale or a juicy tell-all? In this episode of Celebrity, I'll be discussing Confessions of a Video Vixen, Corinne Steffens, and the rise and fall of an era. Most videos in the nubile hip-hop and parallel R&B genres served up faceless women usually relegated to the background as accessories locked in dance routines. Their costumes weren't too risque. Contrast this video with 1989's Me So Horny by Two Life Crew, which is too grainy to put in here, but had swimsuit-clad women and gyrating. This video foreshadowed the rise of explicitly sexual hip-hop videos in the 90s, followed most notably by 1992's Baby Got Back by Sir Mix-a-Lot, which, like many of its predecessors, focused on women who were dancing in routines. But by the mid-90s, something was changing. Cameras were spending way longer time on the women just being hot. Take 1995's Doing It by LL Cool J. The camera and LL spend a lot of time ogling at models Pilar Sanders and Talani Rabb. On September 11, 2000, BET's 106 in part premiered and became the network's number one show until its cancellation in 2014. Artists having their video appear in the top 10 countdown on 106 and other shows was a crucial component of a successful pre-social media career. Around the same time, hip-hop was being infused with more cash than ever from 
from outside sources. Lucrative endorsements with liquor companies, rising streetwear labels, and other entities were abundant. A 2005 article noticed the rise in product placements in hip-hop songs, noting that Hypnotic, launched in 2001, by 2005, quote, had been either name-checked in or appeared in the video for 26 different tracks, including three by R. Kelly, two by Missy Elliott, one by Lil' Kim, and one by Usher. The drink went from selling 10,000 cases in 2001 and 2 to 700,000 cases in 2003 and 4 without spending a penny on TV or magazine advertising. Record company budgets for flashy and luxury crammed videos were inflated, and this meant more money and time was spent on finding the creme de la creme of women to appear in videos. And by creme de la creme, it's important that I emphasize that the beauty standard was very exclusive. Even now, it's funny to see people reminisce on the video vixen era as a time when all the women looked different, supposedly unlike today's Instagram models. But when you look back through the videos, it's clear that a certain look was definitely in for the most popular video girls. Slim yet curvaceous, light skin or brown skin or dark skin, Eurocentric features, and most notably of all, non-natural hair dominated. And a lot can be said in a future video about the impact on body issues and plastic surgery. But back to casting. Where did you find her? Just met her last night. You hit that? No, I don't think she's like that. They're all like that, all right? She's like that. She's like that. And I know she like that. She's gorgeous. I love recalled in the early video days of the 90s, quote, he hired women to assist because men were always a problem because they want to cop all the girls. Because of the commercialization of hip-hop, the casting sets of the early 2000s were usually more professional than the cheap and seedy casting calls of the 90s, though video sets were a different story. It was well known that women on set faced harassment and sexual propositions, usually from emboldened members of artist entourages who would indulge in too much drugs and sponsored I can totally tell you stories about sets where uh, some of these rappers were just disgusting toward the women. Uh, Jermaine Dupri was probably one of the worst, as was Mac 10. Mac 10's music video set was disgusting. I wasn't selected to be on Mac 10's set because he was using real strippers. And it was, I mean, the set smelled like puss and sweat and just funk. And the chicks were half naked. It was like a stripper club. At it was like it wasn't at a stripper club, but it was like I was visiting Kadada Jones. Actually, she was on the set um, doing like production work, and I was going to visit her. But um, I went on set, and I was just disgusted by the way. Now the women were playing themselves. I will tell you, they were like acting like hoes. Uh, and Mac Ten and his all the men on the set was just ogling these women and making them it was just really low life and disgusting and then jermaine dupree he was gross i mean i was on set with him too um in the late 90s and just the way he would deal with the women was really nasty and gross very uh i couldn't believe janet jackson got with this type of nasty turd okay let's get back to this though
liquor. But putting up with such nonsense could net wannabe video vixens a unique type of micro-celebrity that foreshadowed the rise of modern-day social media influencers. To become a video vixen, it was important to be in shape, have trademarks of desirability in hip-hop, think ass, tits, and popping hair, wear the flyest clothes, and exude sexuality and confidence. This obviously meant that becoming a video vixen was an investment. Pictures needed to be taken, surgeries might need to be obtained, and gas or even flight tickets needed to be acquired to attend casting calls, which were notorious for being crowded and ruthless. The investment didn't pay off for everybody, which meant there was a hierarchy of video girls. Viewer discretion is advised. <laughs> who couldn't secure a leading part or supporting role. Small checks could be secured in the super CD and explicit uncut videos that often aired on BET's infamous late night show and were compiled onto DVDs to be sold at gas stations and triple X stores. These girls didn't get craft services or hair and makeup artists, but they were often directed to do wild stunts in pools, strip clubs, and rented mansions. They were also looked at with extreme disgust by the mainstream video vixens and casting directors. But the appeal of women like Melissa Ford Gloria Velez, Jessica Cartwright, Buffy the Body, Esther Baxter, Andrea Michelle meant there was a small yet lucrative market for video vixen micro celebrities. For those of us who came of age in this era, we remember the plethora of party flyers advertising vixens hosting parties and events everywhere from thriving metro areas to tiny backwood towns where trips to Walmart are like trips to the mall. Some vixens, like Buffy the Body in 2006 ATL, ended up in movies, though for some reason I can't find the clip or picture online, so maybe it's the Mandela effect. Buffy also hosted hundreds of parties and parlayed her career into fitness, publishing, and home decor. The world of video modeling also offered coveted covers and spreads of magazines like King, XXL, Smooth, and more. King Magazine, arguably the biggest of them all, published 51 issues in nearly eight years with a circulation of 271,298 at its peak in 2005. It was notable for including high quality shots of video vixens along with intellectual pieces and GQ style fashion spreads. But midway through its run, the publishing company pushed the editors to focus on tits and ass. While the editors resisted, the magazine itself spawned more explicit copycats like Black Men, Smooth, and Show. All of the popular vixens of the day posed in all or at least one of these magazines by the end of their career. King was rumored to offer cover models between $5,000 and $8,000 for a shoot, though there are disputes about some of these magazines not paying anything but exposure. Last but not least, if video vixens so chose, they could even meet sponsors, sugar daddies, escort clients, or even eventual husbands. These side hustles were important because though these women served as eye candy, whose absence would render most of these videos dreadfully boring, they were not paid very well. Melissa Ford, one of the highest paid and featured models of the era, made $4,000 per day for two-day video shoots. Assuming all her shoots were at least two days and that she made that much consistently through her career, the 20 videos she starred in over five years earned her $160,000, about $32,000 a year. Don't get me wrong, that's a lot of money, a lot more than bartending, stripping, or really any other kind of similar work for about 40 total 15 to 20 hour work days. And luckily, Melissa was fortunate enough to be hired for mainstream television work. But that $160,000 did not include taxes, beauty and grooming, upkeep and travel. Plus, it was a drop in the bucket compared to the video budgets and 
And it was nowhere near the average for video girls who you have to stop and Google image search. Lower level principal video girls could earn as low as $350 a day. The extras, girls who were there to fill in the spaces, got $75 to $150, which was basically nothing after taxes and the grooming necessary to be presentable. In addition to inadequate pay and harassment, Video Vixens faced a lot of criticism and hatred from respectability enforcers in and outside the black community. Video Vixens were assumed to be lost and promiscuous, if not downright hoes, lumped in with groupies who'd hang around or sneak on the set specifically to hook up with artists. But of course, the same disdain was not shown to the male entertainers who frequented the same world, nor was disdain shown for the bevy of sexual harassment and assaults perpetrated by these male stars. Instead, Vixens like Buffy, specifically I believe due to colorism were compared to Sarah Bartman, the 18th century woman known as the Hottentot Venus, whose exploitation at the hands of Europeans is well-documented and shameless plug discussed in my book, Angry Black Girl. Because of these women's chosen careers, they were often stripped of their ability to speak for themselves and be heard. In 2004, when Nelly's tip drill video came out and the one day alleged rapist slid a credit card between a girl's butt cheeks, it caused an uproar. Students at the all women's HBCU Spelman College, who was set to be hosting Nelly for a quote charity event enlisting students for a bone marrow registry, insisted he not be allowed. While some students pointed out that the women paid from 200 to 2500 to work for 12 hours were willing and paid participants, the prevailing attitude was that the entire concept was exploitative and offensive to black women. Please keep in mind. I remember when this went down, Nellie was all kinds of like sliding that credit card through the girls' booty cheeks. Remember that? Yeah, Spellman Chicks was mad about it, yo. And I also, I'm one of those ones who was one of those filling the crack extras. I was getting $75 to $125 per music video, although I was a lead extra or whatever feature for this Casey and Jojo um, song. I gotta remember it, man. And look, somebody hit me up and asked me where I was in the um, Rage video. I am the roughest, 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 you know, Afro Puffs. I'm wearing a polka dot shirt. It's a black and white polka dot shirt and I'm wearing Afro Puffs. And I wrote down the little seconds that I was all through the video. It was like four specific places I saw myself, but I don't have that in front of my face right now. I've done over 120 music videos, over 120 plus. I can't remember all of them. But I remember that when I hear the music or when I see the video, I'll be like, oh, yeah, I'm in that video. I've done so many. That's how I paid a lot of the bills when I was in college. And, you know, I had gotten in really cool with a lot of the uh, casting people for those shows. A lot of those people are big now. Twinkie, she's big. Um Mona Scott, she was a casting director. Now she's, you know, hip love and hip hop. And um, there's a couple other ones, but let's get back into that in Georgia, where the minimum wage was $5.15, 12 hours at that rate would have earned those same women $61 and it would be taxed. 
One Morehouse student named Kenneth Laverne said, these are grown women. I'm putting the blame on the women before being loudly booed by the 300 or so women at the meeting. Spelman senior Nicole Howard said, you have to demand respect, but I doubt these women even thought that they were being disrespected. It makes me sad, makes me realize how much work we have to do to educate women. This demonstrates the infantilizing, chastising attitude displayed towards video vixens and by extension, sex workers, many of whom were simply doing labor for money or the idea of money and security. It makes me sick to my stomach that someone like Charlemagne the God, an admitted rapist and physical assaulter of women who was still dodging accountability for the alleged rape of 15-year-old Jessica Reed in 2001, would act as some sort of moral compass in this early 2000s exchange with video vixen and businesswoman Buffy the Body. What do you say about um, people who say you're, you're not that attractive? You just have a body. I've never heard that before. You're lying. No. Never ever? Nope. Never in life? Never. Do you ever have you are you got any acting roles coming anything of that nature? Probably. I'm working on some stuff. I'm working on a lot of stuff right now. Well, if you, I think film, you're just really milking this 15 minutes of fame thing. That's no, what I really no. Think. First of all, you don't don't feel like you ever have to sleep around with the rappers, the artists, the um different modeling agencies, the guys who run. You don't have to sleep with those people. Look how far I've gotten. And I haven't had to sleep with anybody. How far actually have you gotten, Buffy? <sighs> think I've done anything to degrade myself. I'm not going to shit on this industry. This industry has been good to me, Buffy later said in a 2007 article. She went further saying, I think every model should try to do other things. You can't be in a magazine showing your butt forever. The same article was a definite sign of the time saying venomously, her face isn't especially striking. She has never worked out much and she boasts a diet consisting mainly of salty meats and sugary drinks. I remember reading that article talking about she eats salty meats. You know what I'm saying? Like she's a fucking animal. Sweets and salty meats. Get the fuck out of here. She's a beautiful sister. You know, talking about average. They're comparing her to those exoticals. You know what I'm saying? She had a real black girl face. Her body was stupid. I cannot. I didn't even support these type of magazines at the time because I really, I mean, they really inspired me to write video ho, quite a, to be honest with you. But you know, when I reflect back on it, you know, there was a lot of um, disrespect, man. It was just, yeah, the sisters were kind of, you know, not kind of, they were, I felt exploiting themselves, you know, and making it harder for all other women who are not strippers or who are not a part of, you know, wanting to expose themselves. I felt like they made it harder for us who aren't with that because now I couldn't get music videos. Yeah, my my uh compute my music video career basically ended in 2003 because the women on set was looking more like this whereas before, you know, I started back in 93 with Pop Pop Goes the Weasel, the Weasel, right? And then moving on to well, it's a group thing and back back forth and forth with Aaliyah, right? And many many others. But we never had to dress like this, you know. But I noticed around 2002, 2003, after Amber Jarrett died. Amber Jarrett was another very famous, very popular casting director. She's the one that booked me in like 120 of the music videos plus that I've done. But she passed away. I didn't even know she died until I saw Hype Williams. He was on the MTV Music Videos Awards. And he uh, gave her, uh, you know, gave her respect shout out he was like rest in peace to amber jared i was like what 
But um, Amber Jarrett, yeah. Um, they started really wanting us to dress like this on set. And I'm never doing that. I was not doing that. I remember for this DMX music video. Yeah, I worked with DM DMX. With this DMX music video, they were like, dress hot. You know, it's supposed to be Harlem. It's supposed to be a hot summer day. Child, I wore this really cute summer dress, okay? And they were like, what are you wearing? You are wearing too much clothing. They basically wanted us to wear bikinis down the street, which I thought was ridiculous. You know what I mean? Like, why do you want me to? I didn't want to. Yeah. So I started not, A, they didn't start, they didn't pick me. And B, uh, yeah, these are pick me's, by the way. Um, and I didn't want to do videos with them anymore, with, with do videos anymore, for real, because it was, it was this. But her not exactly model-esque figure is exactly what's in demand for music videos right now. The reality of video vixens' lifestyles behind the glamour of hip-hop videos, along with the criticism they received, would come to a head in 2005 when Corinne Steffens dropped the book that set the streets ablaze. Where, doing what, with who? Everything that I read disgusted me, Corinne recalled in 2005 when discussing her writing process. From years of journals, throughout an abusive childhood, troubled teenage years, and the notorious years on hip-hop sets and hanging out on the party scene, she culled the recollections that became confessions. Steffens was born in St. Thomas of the U.S. Virgin Islands, where she had an abusive and neglectful mother, but at least had the guidance and love of her grandmother. At age 10, she moved to Tampa Bay, Florida, where without her grandmother, she faced worsening abuse and indifference from her mother. Without the love, support, and encouragement of my grandmother, I looked for those things outside the home, she wrote. She stayed out on the streets rather than going to her abusive home, a pattern she would later identify, writing, quote, I would much rather have been on the streets as a derelict than to feel like I was in the way. At age 13, she was raped by the friend of her friend's crush, an emotionally devastating event that was made worse by her mother blaming her for the rape. Quote, she began to punch and kick my head, neck, and chest. She screamed, you smell like sex. You're disgusting. Go take a shower. My mother never once expressed concern or worry about me, never asked if I was all right. She automatically attacked me and made me feel dirty and low, the same way I felt in that motel room. Her mother then made her take a scalding hot shower. After a few years of abuse that eventually led to fighting, threats, running away, and staying with her father and his extended family, Corinne became homeless in Arizona at 16 before dating a man whose mother introduced her to stripping. At just 16, she became Yazette Santiago and began pulling in thousands a night and began mingling with Arizona Cardinals football players. At 17, when she was out as a private dancer, she began dating Cool G Rap, who was 27. He was abusive and insisted Corinne call him daddy, and very soon she was pregnant. He remained abusive throughout the pregnancy, and without a job or money, Corinne was dependent on the increasingly irrelevant rapper. Eventually, she escaped him and later dropped her son off with him on a sidewalk to move unencumbered to LA, where she began fucking iced tea and Ja Rule. The former, she credits with introducing her to the LA social scene. The latter is how she got her nickname, Superhead, which initially began as an inside joke. She also really wanted Fred Durr who told her, make me come and I'll marry you before hitting and quitting. She also began dating the just turned 18 Ray J when she was 21. It was during this period that Corinne did a lot of running between all of these men looking for affection and acceptance. But it was her drug-fueled relationship and breakup with Ja Rule that really impacted her. 
After being triggered by a Father's Day article detailing Ja Rule's wife's second pregnancy, she got jealous and made a scene in a club. He dubbed her, and shortly after, Hype Williams scouted her to be in her next video, Jay-Z's Hey Poppy. Corinne quickly made a name for herself, though she was known as Yazette. She wrote, quote, I did the most outrageous things possible while the other girls proudly sported modest full-back bikinis and one-piece bathing suits. She wrote, the majority of girls on video shoots are reserved and are there strictly to do their jobs. Jay-Z was exceedingly nice to Corinne, and she went on a ride with him. After the chauffeur parked and exited the car, she wrote, quote, Jay pulled out his penis, covered it with a condom, and placed his hand on the back of my head. Corinne rationalized. I was being a good girl, thanking him and proving my worthiness of the kindness he had shown. I was doing what I had been taught. At her next video shoot, titties out and glistening with oil, Corinne basked in the attention and hatred from her fellow video girls. Knowing all the other women hated it heightened my excitement and made me want more of this sort of attention. I never really had girlfriends, so the idea of not getting along with the other girls on set was not a deterrent for me. The next chunk of the book explored Corinne's wild and unexpected behavior on set. See, she's the one that made it harder for women on set, that type of broad. She was the one who would go off sucking motherfucking his dicks and shit on set, making the rest of us look bad. Hold on. Wait. Hold on. wait. But yeah, she's the one. She would be that trick. That would be tricking off and making women look bad. She's that one. Exploitation at the hands of major players like Irv Gotti, drug use, and more transactional relationships, like with Shaquille O'Neal. She wrote of Irv, I was his party favor, and I became the new form of payola with label and radio heads. Whenever there was someone who Gotti wanted to impress, he would send me to them and I would take care of them. As her drug problem worsened, she blew her money on an apartment she barely slept in, three leased cars. Sound like she would have worked well with Puffy, right? Isn't that what Puffy like? He liked to send his girls, allegedly, to go handle his business for him with these execs sometimes. Ain't that what I heard? Anyway, let's get back to it. around the clock nanny and drugs. Four months after she had appeared in a man apart with Vin Diesel, she was broke. I had been around the rich and famous so long, I actually began to believe I was one of them, she recalled. She came home one day to an eviction notice and all her luxury cars were gone. She went through her list of men calling for help and none helped. She spent the next nine months homeless, living with her son in a car, stripping and escorting. It might be around this time that she appeared in a porno with Mr. Marcus, who distributed the film years later after confessions dropped. She eventually got back cool with Irv Gotti in the murder ink camp before having a drug-induced seizure and again following the same patterns. She wrote, all my life I have been running from one form of abuse to another and now I was the one abusing myself. So she prays and two men come to her rescue. God apparently sends her a 70-year-old Japanese food-loving sugar daddy who gave her $2,500 every Sunday and convinces her to stop stripping. The other was a man who pursued her romantically and helped her get stable housing so she could stop living out of hotels. 
Now I'm going to stop summarizing because I've already given quite a bit of spoilers. And if you choose to read or reread this book, the ending isn't ruined for you. There are a lot of solid points about self-esteem and abuse in the book. But this story is about Corinne Steppens, the part-time video vixen, not all video vixens. She was in a few hip hop videos, but most of her book was about escapades and dates with powerful men in the LA party scene. The things she struggled with were exacerbated by the harsh exploitation of the hip hop world. Okay, has anybody, anybody out there read this book? It's an easy read. Uh, Jake says, I remember they had a BET special on Nelly swiping that credit card. Yeah, that was disgraceful. Let me tell you, I had a good old friend. She was an elder and she told me she traveled to, um, where was she, Ghana? Yeah, and she stayed at like the Hilton Ghana and they had BET, y'all. And that video came out, this, this fool swiping the girl's booty. She said she had never been so embarrassed in her life. It's terrible. Yeah, it's like they want people to be the same, yeah. Evelyn Sykes says, hello, good, all right, what's up? Trucker Boy Entertainment, she did what she thought she had to do. Word up, Trucker Boy. Hey, what's up, Impu? I hope you're still around. I'm sorry, I'm just getting to these comments. My bad, I was getting in, I was in the show, let's see. I bought that book, but I never finished reading it. Yeah, it was, you know, it was entertaining, you know, and then she wrote like a part two or three or something. You know, she's very clever and she's very intelligent. And I feel like had she been given another type of life, she could have been something uh, extremely powerful on the other spectrum. You know what I mean? No shade, no disrespect to her, but she did mess it up for a lot of women on set. Like she really made them fools think, you know, they were just gross anyway. I'm going to put the blame back on the men as well. You know, I have a song called Video Ho, and I talk about how men should not take advantage of women. Even, you know, women naturally kind of sometimes when they feel grateful or appreciate things, they give themselves to men. Um, but I feel like in these times, you guys know better. Don't fall for the trap. Then you got 15 baby mamas. Just politely, respectfully say no. You know, you have to learn self-control too. They always talk about women need self-control. Yes. Yes. A lot of women are damaged, sick. You know, Tamiko need PayPal or Patreon boo. Oh yeah. Thank you, Evelyn. That's true. I was talking about that. I have gotten a couple donations. We also have super chats now. Woo, woo, woo. I'm big time. Super chats. And, um, thank you, Evelyn. I really appreciate that. Let me check this. I haven't checked any of that. Let me see. Y'all are awesome. That's really cool. I feel so official now. I feel official as heck. Y'all are cool. Thank you. I appreciate that. Likes are free, though. Y'all can click like. Jay says she could have made a sugar baby course. <laughs> yes, she could still. I mean, well, maybe it's different now. I don't know. These men are into men that dress like women now. You know, they're really anal obsessed. That's why those, it, it's not by coincidence, a lot of them loving hip hop types or them chicks down. And I much love and respect to the chicks in the South. I'm not trying to sound like I'm pulling shade, but they got their asses blown up bigger. Black women naturally, in general, have nice, firm, round asses. Big, small, square, big, flat, fat. We got them. And we ain't never needed to add nothing to what we already have. Just like a lot of them loving hip hop style lead chicks, be adding, they be having lips big as mine. 
and then they'll still go get some shit, shit shot in them. Now, my lip is cricket because I had an accident and I split my lip in half. And then they had to sew it back up. So I got the little sewing scar right there. But yeah, and I might get that fixed. But to be all like duck lipped out, looking like Chloe Kardashian, Kylie, and whatever the broads, chicks' names, it's not worth it. Just turned in to Miko's show. Couldn't catch you at the beginning. Busy B. Well, all right. That's cool. Thank you for tuning in. I feel like it's been entertaining. Again, I'm going to repeat. I've been mostly using this sister, Intellectual Media. You should check her out. She has a very cool amount of informational videos that that teach a lot about all kinds of history pertaining to the focus on Black people, and I really enjoy it. Black women specifically more so, but definitely Black men and women are involved in her research about things. I've just selected to... I took a few extra days to find resources so I wouldn't have to reinvent the wheel. Like all I would have been doing is talking and showing pictures of what I'm talking about, but she has a very nice format and display. So I figured why why reinvent the freaking wheel? I didn't show her stuff and give her her love. Thank you, intellectual media. Please make sure you go check her stuff out and subscribe to her. And thank you uh, for this. So let me get back to this. Uh, Make sure you comment in the chat and uh, let's get into But there are things she would have struggled with no matter the profession she was in. Her book inadvertently made all video vixens out to be as troubled as she was. And it's kind of understandable why top billing video vixens who still wanted to work and navigate the misogynistic landscape like Melissa Ford distanced themselves from Corinne, which we'll come back to in a moment. Corinne noted that sex between video girls and rappers was not the norm, but that they were susceptible to the advances of casting directors, crew, and entourage members. The misogyny hurled at Corinne was simply a confirmation of everything already believed about video girls, even the so-called good girls like Melissa. We've had to listen to rappers brag about their conquests for ages in their music. Corinne is the first female to flip the script and brag about her conquests with actual names, and that's making a lot, and I do mean a lot, of people uncomfortable, a gossip blogger was quoted in a 2005 review. Uncomfortable with the coercive sex, sexual assault, inebriated sex, pimping, etc. Uncomfortable with the poverty, reproductive coercion, and financial and physical abuse that goes unchecked in the book? No, because that was not the conversation being had about confessions. The conversation was harsh, but it was about Corinne and her choice to name names, and not the men who often took advantage of her. People expect me to be ashamed. And all my life, I've been expected to be ashamed of who I am. And I'm not. And I think that it bothers a lot Mm -hmm. of people that I'm not ashamed. And a lot of us spend our lives being ashamed of who we are and what we've done and are afraid to share that with our children. It doesn't bother me that you're not ashamed. I I admire the fact that you're not ashamed. I think what bothers me is that I think you are a very smart woman. You're very articulate. Mm -hmm. And I, I think you do know exactly what you did. And you knew that naming names would be the thing that makes the press because you were attracted to that. You're attracted mm-hmm. to names, you're attracted to celebrity. And I think you do understand that naming these names means that, you know, this is gonna get attention. Most of the men in the book never responded to allegations, except for notably Bobby Brown. He said, Corinne is a liar. I should sue her before switching gears and saying, nah, I'll just leave her alone. 
In barbershops and beauty salons, on radio and talk shows, Corinne was looked at as a hater, a liar, scandalous, and or a snitch. I don't know, Corinne, you have angered a lot of folks and a lot of folks' wives. I think a lot of people are uncomfortable, but the things that I left out are way bigger than the things that I put in. But you keep running from stuff. Like, I wasn't even going to get at you like that. You know what I mean? But you got you problems. Can't keep, you, you can't, can't keep, keep running. running. Corinne's explosive book and her decision to name names has made her public enemy number one in the hip-hop community. Peace to her. I'm glad you don't go with your book, girl, but you live it dangerous. Chill out. <laughs> That's just, wow. Whew, I feel bad for those dudes in that book. The whole point is she's selling a product, so she's doing whatever she can do to make money and to get notoriety. My thoughts on Corinne Stephens is, is that she talks too much. She's basically talking about everything that goes on behind closed doors. That's why they're behind closed doors. See, that's tacky to me and low vibration. Then she's your closed door. Nobody has once said, you're right, Corinne. I'm married. I have a wife slash or girlfriend slash baby mama. I should not be pulling my penis out in limo for you to suck on it through a condom, right? Or, you know, or whatever. All of that. That's disrespectful and would be considered immoral, mostly. Everybody knows this. But because they're rappers, because they're famous, everybody's supposed to just, you know, ignore that fact. You know, now they're bringing up the fact that he, Jay-Z was messing around with Foxy Brown, you know what I mean? Uh, when she was 15, whatever when they did Il Nana and all that. And it's like, come on, this shit is old at this point. Fucking Foxy Brown's like 45 now. Like, let it go. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's fuck at this point. They're just trying to mess with people. I mean, I guess it should be addressed. Yeah, okay. Foxy done brought that shit up multiple times or whatever. You know, that's how people used to date back in the day before people trying to adopt other people's cultures and shit. You know, 15 hot ass, Hot ass 15 year olds, sometimes like grown men. Okay, I've seen a lot of that when I was teaching high school. They like men, they don't like boys, they don't like 14, 15 year old boys. A lot of times they like older men. And then I thought about it, I was like 12, liking Michael Jackson. What the fuck? I mean, he was 25. What the fuck, I'm liking Michael Jackson, grown at Prince, too. You know, all those celebrity dudes, they were grown. And I was 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. LL Cool J. I need love. That was my thing when I was like 13. You know what I mean? I was really sprung off some LL Cool J for a minute. Uh, he was a grown ass man. I mean, would my 13 year old self be with 18, 19 year old LL Cool J? Most certainly not. But I thought that was perfectly fine. <laughs> But, you know, see how things are different uh, now, you know, it's just different. But Foxy, you know, Foxy was fast. She was with a bunch of people before she was with Jay-Z, according to her own self. You know, that's her business. But I'm just saying, you know, it. everybody needs to accept responsibility for their actions. Nobody forced these women to get their asses in these videos and shake their shimmy. Okay. Yeah, Tyra was cool. But lately, I've even been seeing stuff on Tyra. Like, they've been saying Tyra was a mean girl. It's interesting how actor Darius McCrary was married to Corinne Stephens. Yeah, I've that's what I was seeing on the uh, Night and Day Network. Shout out 
to Night and Day Network. They're a very dope um, uh, channel. They really have excellent topics. They're really great. Check them out, Night and Day Network. Um, yeah, they said that. And I was like, when was he married to Corinne Steffens? This dude gets around. I mean, he was with Nona Gay. I remember she threw all this stuff out the window. He really angers women when he breaks up with them. And I don't know what he's done. But that Darius, he really angered this most latest chick. Is she really a mean girl? I don't know. But if you watch these documentaries on YouTube about Tyra Banks, they're all the chick, a lot of the chicks from America, America's Next Top Model says she was extremely mean to them and rude and they really are hurt still by her and her behavior. She plays nice, but she's not. She tried to make, uh, uh, what's the other model? Naomi Campbell look like the bad girl or like as if Naomi Campbell did her wrong. Come find out that wasn't the whole story. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's what they bring it up now. That's what they're trying to say. I mean, most of the people back then was very blunt. Yes, you could definitely talk a little more open back then. Yo, for sure. And Pooh says, Tamiko show I had crushes on older women when I was a child. Pure innocence. Same with your crushes. Yeah, I never got that deep into like visualizing me with Michael Jackson. I just always wished his car would, you know, get a flat tire on the west side of Chicago and his limo or whatever would just be right there. And I'd be like, oh my God, Mo Jackson. Uh, you know, things like that. I think I drew a, a, a comic strip like that, a comic strip when I was 12 like that. I'm like, Michael Jackson. And I used to wear the buttons. Did anybody my age group, anybody used to wear those little buttons, those Prince buttons, those Michael Jackson buttons, culture club buttons, anybody? You yeah, press one. Put ones in the chat if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, Cindy Lauper, Madonna, they all had these little, little, cute little, they literally were like little pictures in circles and you would clip it into your shirt or your jacket or your backpack. It was the coolest thing. And the more buttons you had, the cooler you were in Chicago, at least. So anyway, let's get back to this. is basically a gigantic seal of verification that Corinne's horrific experiences were the truth. These quotes demonstrate the misogyny she faced from men, but the pushback from her fellow video vixens was also fierce. Many were eager to emphasize that while they shared the same widely criticized and maligned job as Corinne, they were not addicts, not sex workers, and not promiscuous like her. Though it was their job to be sexy, elicit sexual arousal and responses from men for money, and wear little to no clothing, protecting a sense of morality was important important, especially in the super slut shamey 2000s climate, I can't believe I personally survived. Said Melissa Ford, I was raised with a certain moral and value system. I was always vocal about my representation. If there was a role that seemed salacious, I would work to get it redone. I was never the good time girl on set. Melissa further elaborated on Stefan saying, she has a sense of ownership of who she is. She has no problem admitting she's a whore. Statements like these are often found in other areas of sex work. Think sugar babies who look down on escorts and strippers who look down on cam girls. And you best believe the video vixens look down on the strippers just like non-sex worker women look down on the strippers and everybody else. 
This is whorephobia, the main reason why many people read confessions and walk away feeling like dehumanizing video girls was okay. If no whore is safe from dehumanization and we can all be whores, it would behoove all women to stop putting each other on a totem pole. But this is not a conclusion that Corinne arrived at. Instead, she marketed her book as a cautionary tale and an expose of video girl lifestyles with her own self-esteem issues and unresolved trauma at the center of the narrative. In interviews, the book seemed to function as a form of therapy and catharsis in which she was able to look back on her past and reckon with her mistakes. When asked about the men sending her up to 10000 a month in exchange for sex and whether or not she felt like a prostitute, she said, Absolutely. I think I have sold so much of myself for so little. She then touched on her childhood. I never felt pretty or cared for. With these men, I felt glamorous and powerful, and I did feel loved. In another 2005 interview, unforgivingly titled, A Body Lifestyle and How to Shake It, Corinne said, we know what happens to little black boys that have no dads. We've heard that, we get it. But no one is really saying that young women who are born without fathers have real serious issues, especially when their mother had no father. And the Mother has issues. When I talk about it, people are actually listening, Steffens explained. She got the hammer on the head. That's what I'm trying to balance out right now. Yeah, that was hierarchy. Hierarchy. <laughs> That's funny. But yeah, you know, a lot of people in my age group. <clears throat> I'm from the 70s, and I'm part of the hip-hop, you know, from the 90s, mostly. I'm still an MC. I still rhyme. I just brought out some music a few weeks ago, if y'all go check it out. I have one subscriber on my Spotify, and I have 29 listeners, one stream of my songs. Those are songs I recorded years ago, a few years back, but I brought them out now because I never brought them out. Why not? I'm about to bring out new stuff and I want y'all to know at least my repertoire. I have an album out also that I brought out in 2007, 2006, 2007 called Vows, y'all. It's really dope. I went under, I went under the name Watts 1965. Watts 1965. And uh, yeah, check me out. Vows. My sister, Aunt Pooh says, my sister had tons of those Prince and Michael Jackson buttons. She regrets that she did not keep them. Might be worth a lot of money right now. You know, I did keep my buttons, but I moved around so gosh darn much that I um, I didn't keep up with a lot of stuff. Well, let's keep going with this right quick because it's getting later and later. Daddy issues in this society? <sighs> Groundbreaking. Corinne's precarious and physically abusive living experience with Cool G Rap was made worse by financial abuse, something else that went undiscussed in popular conversations about confessions. But Corinne's emphasis on her superhead nickname, her sexual appetite, and the way she exposed married and taken men worked against her earlier assertions that confessions was a cautionary tale. Superhead is a, is a moniker that I gave myself um, in a personal relationship of mine that I had. Um, with an artist, um, and it was a joke between us, based on our on our love life, and 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 and, and it was all of those things. Um, but unfortunately, it, it got out, and once it got out, it got misunderstood. You know, um, I'm not saying it's not true. Corinne later used Superhead as a nickname, taking it back to mean someone with a superior brain, but the name stuck for other reasons. 
Confessions in somewhat rushed and unraveled with a sad chapter about an experience with Usher that makes the reader wonder if Corinne really learned anything at all. Later, when she appeared on Jamie Foxx's radio show and was asked about the state of her vagina, she said it was still super tight and firm enough to snatch off condoms and that most of the men I know are bigger whores than I've ever been. Steffens also announced she was dating political commentator and somehow unpunished user of the N-word, Bill Maher. We'd love to have you work in the fields with us. <laughs> work in the fields? That's part of that. That's <laughs> Senator, I'm a housemaker. <laughs> Morali Balaji in Redefining Black Womanhood in hip-hop music videos. Under the pretense of being a cautionary tale, Steffens glorified the notion of black women compromising their identities and being defined by their sexual prowess. Steffens, who earned the name Superhead for her dalliances with the male performers in whose videos she appeared, appeared to promote a how-to of young black women seeking career advancement within the music video modeling industry. Other critics disagreed with this assessment wrote Florida newspaper columnist Doug Lyons, the book is a cautionary tale that contains a timeless message to a new generation of women who believe shaking their rumps on a rap video can lead to a better life. It's not that easy. Too bad Steffens can't get her story on BET Uncovered. You know, I must say, I, I didn't feel like she glorified it. I just feel like she told her story. Headmaster. Well, she's a woman. How about headmistress? Headmistress. I don't know. I don't really super judge her super hard and poo, but I do judge her, though, because she really cho she made choices. You know, you always have choices. We all do. You know, I, I kick myself sometimes for some choices I've made and some choices I've resolved. Like, well, that shit happened, you know, and I got to keep moving. But um, let's get back to this. So was it a tell-all or a cautionary tale? Is Corinne a reformed hoe or a proud hoe? At some points, Corinne lavishes the reader with gossip and names of luxury items and hotels, while at others, she chastises herself for doing drugs, being pimped out and neglecting her son. Most strikingly to me, there is little remorse or time paid to the women dating the men Corinne at some points feels ashamed for sleeping with. She also makes it clear that she enjoyed making other women around her upset and jealous, one of those hallmark traits of someone with low self-esteem. Later, after the book is published. Okay, see, that's another point. There's a lot of women who think like that. That's why I've been having headmistress. <laughs> or I've seen a clip of her doing her superhead works, and I wasn't that impressed. It was okay, but I'm not a man, but, you know, Based on what I saw, I wasn't, it wasn't, there was nothing super like, oh my God, she is doing that shit. Where I've seen some big, chunky, fluffy girls like making that shit like, they'd be like killing it. So, you know, anyway, she's a pretty girl and uh, she's had a very wild life from what we see. Let me see. Let's keep going. She said something that triggered me. Let me go back. Go back, I can't remember. Hold up paid to the women dating the men Corinne at some points feels ashamed for sleeping with. She also makes it clear that she enjoyed making other women around her upset and jealous. One of those hallmark traits of someone with low self-esteem. Oh, yeah. Jealous. So, yeah, a lot of chicks, you know, I'm coming to really learn. I'm slow because I've been around 
taking care of children. I ain't been nowhere. Just going to school, coming home, going to work, taking care of kids. So when I hang out with some of the homegirls, you know, <clears throat> I don't be assuming one would be jealous of whatever they think I have because I don't be looking at my life like that. I don't be like, yeah, I got that shit popping. I don't. To me, I give thanks for what's happening. But I, I mean, you know, no way. And nor do I feel that way about uh, other men or women and the, and the things that they've earned and, you know, had whatever. But She's one of them chicks, and I've had a lot of them around me before. They foul. They've been sexually abused, and they, uh, you know, they think that showing, doing this overexposure is a form of power, and it is a form of power. Uh, you know, an elder told me it's called sexual witchcraft, where they hypnotize you basically with their movements and their body, and then it becomes like, what's the point of that, though? It's to distract you from doing what like what other things productively could you be doing instead of wasting money in strip clubs or having hoes or cheating on your man or woman or uh you know creeping off like just knock it off man it's like really we like self-sabotaging there's a term it's called self-sabotage and we do all of us to certain degrees do it when we start feeling nervous about new things new movements uh, any type of commitments, we get a type of anxiety, I believe. And when we get that anxiety, we self-sabotage. We harm ourselves in some way, not necessarily physical, but, you know, like, you know, running, going, being late on purpose, um, hanging out with a bad crowd, um, just making poor choices, you know what I mean? And it becomes based on <clears throat> a form of anxiety because of, you might've had one parent, two parents, but you saw a lot of pain or violence. You could have just had a sad life. You could have got bullied a lot. You could have, you know, had self-esteem issues or whatever. So I'm just saying, you know, these types are like a bully in a sense, like, because they're like, you're going to look at me and love my sex and I'm going to do what the other girls, why are my hands and face two different colors? What is really going on here? Why is that? What is that about? Anyway, that's where. Anyway, you know what I'm saying, though? Y'all hear me, yo. All right, well, let's get back to this. Later, after the book is published, she makes statements about self-esteem and daddy issues and God and the like before pulling out declarations that she is sexually liberated and empowered and wants to do the same for other women. But her sexual liberation is mired still in misogyny. There were girls that want to be taken care of by a celebrity, not realizing that um, you're, you're a whore. You know, plain and simple. That's when read today, Confessions is still very much a product of its time, but it embodies long-term and wide-scale issues among women in the Black community. Familial and domestic abuse, misogyny, poverty, and more directly, misogyny and rape culture in hip-hop. 16 years later, we're still having some of the same arguments and watching the For those of you who don't know, I'm gonna put the board, the name misogyny, on the on the screen so you'll see it. All right, um, let's see misogyny. You see that misogyny? It means woman hater. You see that G Y N Y? That's gyny, genie. That's Latin. No, actually, it's Greek. 
it means vagina basically okay when you see gyna like gynecologist obstetrician gynecologist gyna anything with gyna means pussy all right so um yeah man let me go back a little bit and you see who they look at this ti and his daughter you remember he made his daughter get her cherry check at the doctors he hanging out right there make sure her cherry still pop later we're still having some of the same arguments and watching the same kinds of abusers poverty and more directly all right so a misogynist is a woman hater okay that's what that means it means one who does not like women and rape culture in hip-hop 16 years later we're still having some of the same arguments and watching the same kinds of abusers go by unpunished why do females why go to school no, they don't have to be videos okay why do people in general like go you. to school why do people in general go to school so they can be successful exactly so they can live a better life so why do you okay, exploit baby, your butt i already butt? got there what's your excuse why do you exploit your what's butt? your excuse why do you what's exploit your, your butt? What's your excuse? It's also clear that Corinne was still living through and processing the lessons of her book while in the spotlight and still making decisions she chastised herself for in her book. Sister Soldier, the urban literature author and rapper, was extremely critical of Steppens and according to Shane Lee, suggested that the ending quote confirms that Corinne is not yet ready to tell her story until she purges herself from such carnal yearnings. Shout out to Lee for following that with a line reminding Sister Soldier politely to revisit her own memoir, No Disrespect, to quote, remember what she was like as a young, vibrant woman in her early 20s. She was getting it in. Lee dedicated a chapter in his book, Erotic Revolutionaries, Black Women's Sexuality and Pop Culture, to Confessions of a Video Vixen, and detailed how a lot of the vitriol Steffens received in his Black feminist course was from women with massive double standards. When Steffens appeared on Tyra in 2006, she was berated and chastised for her memoir, while Dennis Rodman didn't receive the same treatment. What mega pop star wanted to have Dennis Rodman's baby? You have had relations with her. Uh, yeah, and then, I ain't gonna lie, hell yeah. <laughs> Watching clips like Tyra's show definitely take me back to being a middle schooler, becoming sexually curious and vilified for my growing body. The misogyny and shame that permeated my school, my community, and even my own household at times was the norm, and it was violent. Girls today aren't growing up with the same level of bullshit, though it exists, but it wasn't like 05 levels. I have to give credit to Corinne for her bravery, even if the books and Intention remains murky. as the internet became more available and the 2008 recession hit the hip-hop world in America at large. Video budgets were slashed by the end of the decade as creativity and frugality became the name of the game. In the words of culture writer Yo Phillips, quote, Hype Williams went from exotic islands to green screen studios. MySpace honeys and reality show wannabes looking for a little bit of exposure were easily persuaded to be music video eye candy, while top video girls like Melissa Ford were suddenly being offered the kind of money that their lessers would receive, clearly showing that the era was coming to an end. By early 2009, accompanying industries were already going down. King Magazine editors were circulating internal memos about the publication's final issue, joining over 428 magazines to go under. This clearly was a mix of the video vixen era ending and the explosion of internet blogs delivering a death blow to the print media industry. But 
of vixens would reemerge from the ashes on social media, even if their reputations would eventually take a hit from GoFundMe pleas and OnlyFans links during the 2020 pandemic. Music videos are no longer the main arena of fandom and obsession for hip hop celebs. Social media is. So modern social media vixens are the next step in the evolution of women who appear to be glamorous, sexually liberated, and gorgeous. But there's less exclusivity, meaning there's beauties and personalities of all types, and there are more direct ways to make money with adoring fans and brands. Melissa Ford's 2000 per day and small collection of $5,000 magazine shoots pale in comparison comparison to the money brought in by today's IG stars and YouTubers who make a living monetizing sex, pushing products, fraternizing with rappers, and pushing the bounds of respectability politics. Some even still appear in music videos, but it's small change compared to the money they can make branding themselves. They can even, like in the case of video models Black China and Ruby Rose, become the problematic, and I cannot stress this enough, rappers themselves. And even more noteworthy, female rappers have themselves become the vixens depicted in their art, challenging the argument that they are being exploited when they choose to do it for themselves without centering the male gaze. It definitely makes me curious to see the next evolution of vixens, particularly in the Black community. Like I said before, I think Corinne Stephan's book was a super brave thing to do. It's hard to imagine it and relive it now just how slut-shamey and whore-phobic the 2000s were as a proud sex worker in 2021. But let's think about it. 2006 was just eight years removed from the Monica Lewinsky scandal in which the abuse of power by President Bill Clinton of a powerless young intern was viewed as a joke that earned Lewinsky ridicule and endless smearing. It was around the time that a female celebrity sex tape was viewed as entertainment instead of of revenge porn. It was six years before a public gang rape case in Steubenville, Ohio, divided onlookers and reminded feminists that rape was still not taken seriously. It was over a decade before the majority of the black community finally turned on R. Kelly after years of rumors and downright knowledge that he sexually abused teenagers who were often blamed as fast. So yes, it took a lot of guts for Corinne, as flawed as she is, to dare to discuss toxic behavior in hip hop and the abuse that led to her questionable life choices. <laughs> Years before Me Too, she dared to blow the lid on the abuse of power that happened behind the scenes of glamorous video vixens. If Stephens released her book today, it would have nowhere near the impact it did in 2005 because not enough people were daring to discuss such things. Hold up, let's see. It was an expose, but she tried to kind of, she slightly glorified. It's like she she thought it was a glorified thing. And then she realized when she was like out of control with the drugs and abandoning her son and just oh, sexing a bunch of people and then over exploiting herself and realizing she was trying to purposely make other women jealous. You know, that's ridiculous. That's childish. That's really sick behavior. Kind of man, the superhero. <laughs> yeah. So... You know, everybody grows at their own speed, though. Today, these kinds of exposés happen regularly with even worse behavior and still very few consequences. There were feminists and others who publicly criticized hip hop back when Corinne's book dropped, but they never belonged to that world in the way that Corinne did. 
Today, Corinne remains a controversial author and woman often entangled in drama from her continued publicized exploits with married men, her tumultuous marriages to the guy who played Eddie Winslow and Columbus Short from Scandal, to assertions that everything about her confessions era was fake and contrived for publicity, to a weird video. Hold up. She really was married to Eddie Winslow, y'all. I heard y'all say that, but I was like, nah. And they did say it on the show, but I was like, nah. Right? But she really was married to Eddie Winslow. Hold up. By early 2009, accompanying industries were videos are no longer the main arena of fandom and obsession for hip-hop celebs. Social media is. So modern social media is the abuse of power for Corinne, as flawed as she is, to dare to discuss toxic behavior in hip hop and the abuse that led to her questionable life choices. Years before Me Too, she dared to blow the lid on the abuse of power that happened behind the scenes of glamorous video vixens. If Steffens released her book today, it would have nowhere near the impact it did in 2005 because not enough people were daring to discuss such things. Today, these kinds of exposés happen regularly with even worse behavior and still very few consequences. There were feminists and others who publicly criticized hip-hop back when Corinne's book dropped, but they never belonged to that world in the way that Corinne did. Today, Corinne remains a controversial author and woman often entangled in drama from her continued publicized exploits with married men, her tumultuous marriages to the guy who played Eddie Winslow in Columbia. That shit cray. Hold up. Did y'all know that? Stephen's story reminds me of actress Jamie Foxworth. That's right. Who played the youngest daughter to the policeman on Family Matters when her mom's caused Jamie to be removed from the show. She got into porn. Yeah, that was way out. So did Lawrence Fishburne's daughter. He said he spent every dollar on every copy of the porno. Isn't he with the trans now? He was messing with that trans, but he was actually with um, Rick James' ex-girlfriend and yeah, Night and Day Network. They was just talking about him yesterday, and they were saying that um, he had to get a five-year restraining order against this latest girlfriend because she's been threatening to kidnap his dog and breaking his windshield and threatening him and all kinds of stuff, all kinds of stuff. So he be leaving these women hardcore because they always be wanting to harm him or the type of women he likes, they're that type. Like Nona Gay threw all his clothes out the window and stuff like that. But I think, then they say allegedly he might have HIV or something like that? So maybe the girl just found out he had HIV, so she tripped out, you know? Maybe that's why she tried to, you know, kill him. Allegedly. Alleged herpes. Alleged uh, HIV. I think that's why Nona Gay had broke up with him back in the day because she had learned he had HIV. Did y'all never hear that? Something like that, allegedly. Well, let's keep going. Miss Short from Scandal to assertions that everything about her confessions era was fake and contrived for publicity to a weird video in which she declares that she'll cheat on any present or future husband for little Wayne, a recurring sex partner. So he's always been part of my relationship. So when I get into a relationship, like Wayne will call the house at three, four o'clock in the morning and I will answer. And if he says I'm at the skate park or I'm here, I will get up and I will go. That's what's going to happen. And you've got to be okay with that. Lil Wayne, 
little Wayne. Oh my God, little Wayne. Oh, that's that's nasty. I find it interesting to say the least that after initially. I could see why she would like little Wayne. I could see, I mean, you know, if what they say him with baby's relationship wasn't about, I could see that because I've heard his interviews and he's very intellectual. He's very intelligent. Uh, yeah, he actually is. I think a lot of times he probably was stoned or on something. So you probably couldn't hear or see his intelligence. But when he ain't in that state of mind, I've heard him talk and he's very uh, deep, very intelligent. And that's attractive. Oh, oh, that's, that's I find it interesting, to say the least, that after initially acknowledging that in her relationships with high-profile men that they were taking advantage of her, she released a 2010 manual on how to entice and seduce such men. In 2015, she released a 10-year anniversary memoir, Vindicated. In it, she details the continued cycles of abuse and mistakes that continue to color her life. Ultimately, Confessions of a Video Vixen is an iconic book that subverts both the tell-all and the cautionary tale genres that ultimately gave a lifelong hustler and survivor of abuse a permanent plate to eat from, a journey that she could monetize through the written word. The material is as flawed and entertaining as the author. Isn't that like most hip-hop? We can't sit here and focus on the video people as an exploitation for girls. Let's shut down all the porno shops. Let's shut down every strip club in America. Let's clean up prostitution. If that's the case, we got a lot of things to do. As for video vixens themselves, I have long seen them as straddling the line in the public's eye as somewhere between performers and sex workers. Situated in social currency below actors and fashion models, but above phone sex operators and strippers, two other groups of erotic laborers who benefit from not wearing the sex worker label, which defined means, quote, adults who receive money or goods in exchange for consensual sexual services or erotic performances either regularly or occasionally. I'm sure the comments will include someone bringing up what is tasteful and classy versus lewd and obscene, so I will say that yes, not all video vixens showed a lot of skin, but for the ones who teased and titillated to music about sex, they live in the same world of sexualized performance and fantasy in exchange for money. Whether or not they stripped before like Buffy or escorted on the side like or did nothing but twerk in bikinis, they were viewed by many in society as being hoes, willing to use their bodies to make a living. Like any other erotic laborer living in a vastly unequal society that places a premium on beauty, sexual virility in men, and sex in general, the consensual participation in a flawed system does not cancel out abuse or give a green light to dehumanize someone. It seems like more of us are waking up to this, but every time a major story breaks surrounding sexual or physical abuse, devastating viral responses remind me we still have a long way to go. The issues that femme erotic laborers face, like my OnlyFans friends being revenge porned, like Corinne being pimped out and abused, like the so-called good video vixens being harassed on set, these things exist no matter the industry women choose to partake in. Why? Because misogyny, the hatred and oppression of women, has existed for centuries. So of course hip-hop and every other genre, and even every other industry, still grapples with it today in the social media age.
Well, I think I'm going to stop there, y'all, for tonight. I think I was going to show, like, one more thing. Yeah, again, Tomiko show, and Pooh says, Lawrence Fishburne's daughter, Montana, doing porn was jacked up. I felt like that was a rebellious move, like she was trying to get his attention. You know, he was always gone on movie sets, and I felt like she was feeling neglected and trying to get his attention. That's what I thought based on what they showed on. What y'all think about this Jamie Foxx stuff, man? What do you think is really happening? What y'all think? Write it in the chat. Do you think he just had a stroke? Do you think he was poisoned? They said he was telling some folk in the popo that he felt like somebody was trying to get at him. You know what I'm saying? Why was he thinking that? What was going on? What was he doing? What was what's happening? Mm, I guess it'll be revealed, though. Nothing is not exposed in 2023. But anyways, um, let's see. Oh, great video. Yeah, really, really was, right? And then she goes into some a couple other departments I want to get into. I'm going to just have to do a part three. The music video, The Two Live Crews, Me So Horny, back in 1987, may have been the beginning of video vixens taking a turn. You might be right. I'd have to do some research on that. You know, Madonna didn't help with her little wild ass either. Scandal. But she at least was the artist. She wasn't just eye candy. It got out of control at one point. I don't know if anybody remembers like that. 2000, like early 2000s all around till about 2010. The videos were getting worse and worse and worse exposure wise of the women. I really, I couldn't get a gig because <laughs> I didn't want to do all that. I didn't want to do all that. And um, I had good times though. I had good times. I need to get to bed. I got to get to work and I don't want to be late. So uh, I'll be doing this again with this intellectual media. Thank you, intellectual media. A lot of her clips, uh, I, damn, her whole video, let's just say that. <laughs> Any team we're working with celebs? That's what I'm saying. I do. I've only, I only look at the positive, except for, like I said, I talked about Jermaine Dupree. He was gross. And, um, I don't talk about the grossest. Mac 10 and Jermaine Dupree were the grossest. The cheapest was Puffy. Puffy was cheap. I worked with him for three days. Um, <laughs> and he was $50 a day. Why you do us like that, Puffy? But we wanted to work with Puffy. We took it, but we were well aware that it was a ripoff. And then, uh, you know, personally or any of that, I don't really get into all that. Like, I don't, I only, you know, and if they were my friends and stuff, I'm definitely not really telling their business like that. But I'll tell you some certain things, but I can't really think of that right now. I'm, I'm getting kind of sleepy. Oh, thank you, Evelyn Sykes. Evelyn Sykes says, thanks, I appreciate, appreciate you and all you do. That's very cool. That's very cool. I wanted to have an atmosphere of productivity and progress. I don't just want to get into gossip or tea you know i deleted all them jaguar right videos because it was just too much energy too much negative and i really pray the sister is okay you know what i mean and, and that they're not harming her you know and i think she, i hope she gets the help she needs but i'm not getting involved in none of that no more so i hope you enjoyed tonight everybody and um 
enjoy those who watch it on the rewatch. This is very cool to listen to like late at night when you're going to bed or if you're getting up in the morning, it's like a radio, use it like a radio. So that's it, I'm about to get out of here. Thank you, let's see which was you write. The uncut version of Hip Hop Parade music video by Naughty by Nature was risky for the early. You know what? Naughty by Nature irritated me. And I'm gonna tell you why. I worked with them when I did Groove Thang with Shot. Remember Jeanne? It's a Groove Thang. We got a funky slang. If you go look at Groove Thang, I'm the one that's sitting on the stairs between Gina Renee. Jeanne. It was Jeanne, Gina Renee. Really? Okay. Um, yeah, they were on set. No, but they didn't do anything wrong or anything. I just didn't like that song, OPP, because my boyfriend at the time named Robert, he used to sing that. You down with OPP? Yeah, you know me. You down with OPP? And that would make me mad because I felt like he was going to cheat on me. Great show. We'll remind us to see what I missed. Oh, good. I That's very cool. But yeah, OPP and... Um, Oh, <laughs> I was so mad at him every time he sang that. Anytime I would come on the radio, I'd turn the radio off. Whether we were in the car, in the house, he'd be like, why do you turn it off? I'm like, I hate that song. Forget, you want to cheat on me? You want to be down with OPP? <laughs> he did end up cheating on me, though. It's true, he did. See? Anyways, let me get out of here, y'all. Otherwise, I'll keep being on here. All right, look, stay tuned for my next guest that I'm interviewing. I'm very excited about who I'm about to interview, and I'm going to keep it a surprise. I'm just going to make the flyer, and you'll see. All right, y'all. Have a good night. Hey, this time I go show.